0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about point of view. And this podcast was inspired by a question by Susan. Um, And Susan asks, it's been discussed on podcasts, how different people are more comfortable riding at different camera levels inside a POV. For example, Julie writes a fairly deep third person, while Kira writes a very high, almost skimming one. What do you do when you are working on a story that you feel would be best told with a camera level that you are not comfortable working? Do you rework it into something easier to handle, or do you skip it? She has other questions, too, built into this. Um, Do you find a different perspective, or do you push through? If you push through, how do you deal with feeling that something is wrong? with the perspective, even if you know you've made the right choice for your? the story you are telling? Or conversely, how can you tell a story if you are working with needs a different camera level than the one you were working in? One of the things that I do tend to ride high on the third POV. That's my comfort zone. But you have to be able to dip down into the narrative if you need to. Because that's where you create intimacy. And that's where you create um, a connection for your reader and your character. If I skimmed across the top 100% of the time, Readers would have a very hard time connecting with my writing or my character. and I don't feel like that's a problem that I have. So I feel like I have a very good balance. Now, there, that that is one of the pitfalls of writing a POV that's kind of high on the third on, on the third POV is that you can have a disconnect with your um, with your reader. The other side of it is one of the pitfalls of writing in a deep third person point of view is that you can get kind of bogged down, and it will be jarring if you have to switch POVs to a different character. And that's because third, like that deep third person is really close to first person. And I find it very difficult to read first person work when they're alternating POVs. And so if you run too deep in your third POV, but then you switch to a different um, narrator, it can be jarring for the reader and it can be jarring for your story. So, so you have to find balance. And so Jilly isn't always at the bottom of the third POV. She will shift up to create rhythm and balance and pace in her narrative, right? Yeah.
1: Um, and also because most of my stories, even though I am certainly comfortable writing in a single POV for an entire story, including an entire novel, um, I, I would say the bulk of my work is not single POV. So, um, and I agree that because there are times when you, you need, in order to be able to switch from one POV character to another, um, I don't go the super deep on a POV, when I'm going to be having more than a character, so the deepest POV is the, char- is the stories where it's only one POV per story, um,
0: and that also becomes a pl- that becomes a place of introspection for your character, yeah. um, which can be deep and intimate and rewarding, but it can also be exhausting to write and read. So you got to pick and choose when that's appropriate,
1: and it does become a matter of um, there was the question was um, hit on it hit on the important part of what does your story need because some stories really do call for multiple points of view um and if you're going to do multiple points of view you're not going to do a really you're not going to want to go really dov or alternately um there are some different narrative styles where you could do like like 50 to 60 percent of the story is told from one characters so and you go really deep on that and then you do like shorter scenes from like two or three other people's points of view and they're like a higher level POV and it kind of brings you up out of the introspection but that's sort of advanced storytelling mechanics and not an easy to describe how to do um
0: the other way is to flip it and I see this mostly in suspense where the hero and or if there's more than one main character the heroes here her, they're riding in kind of like a mid-level third POV and then Every once in a while, there'll be a scene from the the villain or the protagonist's point of view that will be really deep and have no dialogue. It'll just be like this stream of consciousness. like and Basically, the writer is giving you a glimpse into this villain's point of view to further your suspense and ramp up your tension.
1: Dean Koontz would do that sometimes. Yeah. Well.
0: And it can just be the- creepy.
1: Yeah, like you just all of a sudden you'd be in the in the in the killer's head head and it'd be very very deep of you. Um,
0: yeah, Nora. Well, she doesn't. Every once in a while we'll get that in JD Rob, but we did. what well, we got it a lot in her Nora books where we get a glimpse of the um the killer or, um the bad guy whatever and it's you know, it can be really startling and unnerving.
1: But impactful. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to understand, this is part of understanding what kind of story you're telling um, so that you can make those decisions, preferably ahead of time. Um, sometimes you get into the story and you stumble over your POV mechanics and you kind of have to back up and go, okay, what am I doing? Um, it's certainly better to to understand the kind of story you're trying to tell first and and work out those POV mechanics before you get going. When it comes to the question about like comfort, because um, the start of the question was, um, what do you do when you're working on a story that you feel be best told at a camera level you're not comfortable working with?
0: Um, get comfortable
1: yeah I mean you gotta you've gotta I would start like let's say you're not used to writing a deep POV. I mean I don't know um, I would start with something short. It's going to be like an introspective or a character study or to get deep into the POV, to get a feel for what that's like. If you're used to writing a deep introspective POV, you need to work on writing some stuff that is skimming, going deep, not going as deep. And honestly, people who are used to writing a very deep POV through the whole story um, often have pace issues, as Kira mentioned. Um, You've got to be able to come up Um, at times and skim stuff. Otherwise, you just wind up in this introspective, broody mess.
0: Um, Funny aside, I've got two shorts on my site that um, represent what I would think is my deepest third person. Well, it's my deepest POV. One of them, I think, is in first person. And one they're both in first person, actually, I spy and it's all fine. One is um, written in Rodney McKay's point of view. And one is written in Sherlock's point of view. And they're both in first person. And it is my deepest POV. Um, in Like, I write first person. It's usually really deep POV. Um, and both. One being an erotica. And the other one being about a serial killer. Both. I've gotten comments on both things. They're creepy. For different okay. reasons. One, because Rodney's kind of being a stalker. Although John is playing on that. He knows what he's doing. John kind of set him up for that. Um, and, yeah. So, no, not a creeper. It was creepy. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the, the Sherlock point of view story was creepy. That was the point. <laughs> I meant for it to be creepy. Um, as far as, like, like third person, I think that probably I went deep off and on in Darkly Loyal. Because I only had one character point of view that was the challenge and it was difficult uh far more difficult than I thought it would be and if I could go back and do it again I probably would have picked a different story for that challenge um although I'm very proud of the work I did in Darkly Loyal I feel like it would have been a lot more fun if I could at least own one of those people in that volcano personally in a scene I mean you know just just one scene Dobby's point of view just just Dobby tossing a wizard off into the volcano and watching him go down would have been great would have been great Maybe I should have done that scene where they actually watched. They did that pensive memory where he did have... Yeah. Kira, Kira that, that, never writing them. She's, she's morally opposed to them. I, I didn't even know what they were to begin with. I mean, they upset me. I, I, don't, I don't know if I should consider them canon in the story, or if they're like if they're like id fic, or wishful thinking, and it makes me uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> I just can't. Um... So um, somebody said that if you want to practice different depths, pick your plot well. Deep POV tends to move slowly, and you have to—if you have a fast-paced action plot—you tend to ride higher, just by the nature of trying to tell the story at that pace. Um, what I, w- I would—I agree to a point. Um, I would say if you want to practice different depths, you need to pick your length well as well, because practice practicing with a novel is not the way I would practice changing the depth of my POV. But also, I don't think deep POV tends to move slowly because since I I mean, I'm gonna disagree on the on the surface of that since I write primarily a deep POV and write, write primarily write a deep POV and I don't think all of my work
0: No, it doesn't. Um But it can, not you personally, but the POV itself. If um if the writer gets can bogged down in the minutia of the character's motivations and right. wall and the character wallows through scenes, yeah, it's gonna destroy your pace.
1: Right. And one of the things people tend to do when they're writing um, more of something, when they're writing a deeper POV, is they think they need to belabor everything. Um, A deep POV does not mean repetitive, and it doesn't mean thinking every single thing through. That's not what it means. Um, It doesn't even necessarily mean introspective. So... um, Maybe challenge people. It would be good to like challenge you, your perception of what a deep POV. It can be an introspective POV, but it doesn't mean that that's the limit of it. So, um, but one of the things I find with people, and this is, I think, actually more of a a rep, an indication that somebody is an, a novice at 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 fiction writing rather than that they're trying to write a deep POV, is that the the narrative beats are the the. A, too introspective, and that they tend to be belaboring everything. Like, the character has to think about every single thing that's said. It can't just let the audience assume anything. And it's often repetitive. So one of the things you have to be mindful of when you have a deep POV is you, your character kind of gets to think things one or two times. Like, if it's really important, you might get to think it twice. But often, you'll see a character cycle through the same thoughts repeatedly, Um Especially when it's related to like internal motivation, like their insecurity, like if it's an insecurity thing that's that's motivating them or driving them, that their internal conflict is is a lot about insecurity or whatever, feeling unwanted or unloved, or that there will be this repetitive, constant re-going over of those thoughts. Um, that is not what having a deep POV means is to repeat that introspection over and over and over again. The audience gets it. You have to pick that moment you have to pick the moment where you go deep in that, where it's impactful and appropriate, not just start the story off and delve deep into your character's neuroses and then repeat it every single time something happens to your character.
0: What you're actually demonstrating that in in, in that is an obsession. And if you want to write a character who's clearly mentally ill, that's the way you do it. Because your reader is going to start to question their mental health and their reliability. Um, and honestly, there's nothing worse for me than an unreliable narrator.
1: I think that there's there's also a little bit what constitutes a deep POV. Um, honestly, a lot of it re- is regard to how much of the character voice is in the narrative beats. The more personality is reflected in the narrative, the deeper the point of view. Mm-hmm. So it's not just I've a matter a, of... I've got a
0: perfect example. I would write... John walked into the room and saw his father. Jilly would write, John walked into the room and saw his dad. Depending on the scene, I don't know yeah. why I do it. Yeah, I don't know why I do it that way. But it, it, is, it is a function of my POV, but I do tend to write that high. And so, like, John describing his father as dad in a, in a, in a narrative beat um, is weird to me. It's really startling especially in third person i'd be more comfortable with it in first person not so much formal as observational
1: um it's it's a it's more um I'm trying to think of the word um it's less unique to the character voice okay so a deep pov your characters so like one of the things kira does is she'll often um use last names like she'll have john be shepherd in his own pov it's something i can never write that's something right because if my character doesn't think of themselves as how my character thinks of themselves is directly reflected in how the narrative beats now a truly deep 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 pov like the deepest third person pov you wouldn't be able to distinguish the language of the narrative beats from the dialogue It would read like first person, but in third person, because it's like the and
0: in that deep, John wouldn't refer to himself as John or Shepherd. Well, in third person, he'd have to. But the thing that's that's the thing if you if if you get that deep, it gets weird.
1: But I mean, there are especially in YA, it's very common that um, the characters refer to themselves as something.
0: Yeah, and they also they also really like first person present tense in YA. Right. (laughs) Um, But which has to be agitating to read. (laughs)
1: Which And so how a character is referred to, um, like if a character has got a nickname, like, you know, um, I don't know, McMuffin, you usually would only use that in dialogue, right? But in a deep POV, a really deep POV, that kind of language that how that person is referred to, it comes into the narrative beats as well. Now, I don't write a strict, deep third person POV because letting my narrative beats be as informal as dialogue drives me nuts but i do make concessions so the language choices in the narrative beats are the same like you'll see a shift in the language between like if i were writing a ducky's pov the narrative language would be different for him than it would be for tony and i make those choices consciously because i do write a deeper pov as opposed to the narrative beats having the basically the same kind of flow through the whole thing for somebody who writes at a higher POV and that's that's and that's a choice I make it to not have my narrative kind of all approximately sound the same through the whole story which would be the the higher POV so um but a really like the deepest third person you'll get you'll get slang in the narrative beats you'll get you know um it, it it's kind of a muddle where it's almost like the character talking to themselves sometimes talking to the audience it's I, I don't like it being there are that a lot unt- of
0: fourth wall breaks
1: yeah it, it at least it feels like fourth wall breaks they're maybe not strict fourth wall breaks but it's mm-hmm. almost like the characters talking to themselves
0: but in that, a really really deep third person point of view you could switch out the he's with the eyes and you can't tell the difference right so the way I would the way I write it
1: like when somebody makes a transition in the narrative in their thought to calling somebody by their first name it's pretty consistent. And they'll think of them by their they'll think of them by their last name until they've made that transition to it being and so like Tony would never refer to in his own narrative beats because in my mind the narrative is his thoughts right He would never refer to his lover by their last name but that's something that doesn't phase Kira at all because that's not her narrative style So Shepherd and McKay who've been in a relationship for 10 years can think of each other as Shepherd and McKay that drives me it drives me bonkers in my own story I would never write them referring to each other McKay Gibbs is an exception because Gibbs is almost like his name. Name,
0: you know, I was trying to remember how many times Rodney actually called John John on the show, and the only episode that really stands out for me is the Shrine where he lost his mind. Nine times out of ten, he calls him Shepherd. Military yeah. being what it is, um, but yeah, ostensibly they're not banging on the show, right? So, but um, for me, I think that really when it when it comes to this like this camera level thing, you need to find number one where you're natural groove is as a writer and hone that and once you have that down then you can move up and down the scale so to speak on the pov to create um like i said pockets in your narrative they're a little deeper or a little more shallow if you're writing from the bottom that sounded that's, that's not that's all a little I meant, weird but <laughs>
1: but some some functions of a deeper shallow pov are a function of how you are as a writer so like how i refer to characters and the language choice in the narrative beats that is a function of how i write and it doesn't matter and so that is reflective of the fact that i prefer to write in a deeper pov so even when i write the pov more shallow so that it's not as introspective it's still going to have those hallmarks of somebody who writes prefers a deeper pov just like even when Kira goes deeper into the narrative her hallmarks are still going to be reflective of preferring a more shallow piece. So, and that comes down to author voice, right? That is your author voice. And that's not going to change no matter what your camera level is. So what it figure out where you're comfortable. And then when it comes to, when it comes to zooming in on detail, when it comes to whether your POV is going to be, and maybe it's better to think of it as are you going to be more introspective or are you going to be less introspective as opposed to thinking as being a deeper or shallower POV? Because um, when it comes to the mechanics of POV, that's as much about the type of words you choose and the type of language you as it is about the amount of detail. you use. So and that kind of that that those hallmarks of your author voice probably won't change, even if you try to write third person omniscient. Actually, that's not true. I actually think if I wrote omniscient, that would change quite a bit. Because the thing about writing omniscient is your character voice becomes the narrator. And it's none of your POV character. Your POV character is the narrator, right? So your deep POV is your omniscient narrator. Now, the way I've only ever been successful at writing an omniscient POV is to make up a third-person narrator in my head.
0: That's how I would do it, but I wouldn't be comfortable doing it, so I wouldn't try. It's not a POV I like to read. I find it, it un- comfortable.
1: It can be entertaining um, if the narrator's entertaining. Like, I find the omniscient narrator in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to be very entertaining. Um, but if the narrator has nothing to give you, um, it can just feel a little bit too distant, a little bit too cold. If if, if they succeeded in a third-person omniscient, more often than not, you just get a head-hoppy mess because they don't actually know to write omniscient. Um, <sighs> it's not about the detail. Because De- sometimes... You certainly, if you, you can go, If there's there's levels of things to consider when you're going to consider how you're writing your story. And it's not necessarily a function of POV. Um, you need to decide what level of detail you want in, your, in general. Do you want to have a lot of descriptors? Is that the kind of writer you are? Um, And you have to bear in mind that the more detail you put in, the more pauses you take to describe, the that all has an impact on pace. Now, you may just be a naturally sort of more moderately paced writer that you like a more moderate pace that you like taking time to describe things and sprinkling description in or amongst your you have all that descriptive beats sprinkled into your narrative and that's fine you just have to put it in in a way that is um consistent and good for your your overall narrative arc um i would say I would say one of the things people often confuse with a deep POV is introspection. And introspection doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a deep POV. It just means you've gone deep into that character.
0: And that's a pace killer sometimes. Sometimes. And so it also but it like, could be boring as hell.
1: Even if, even if you write tend to prefer a more shallow POV, sometimes you're going to do You're going to have to get into in the introspection part of it. You're mm-hmm. going to have to have your characters thinking about how they got where they are and where they're going, where they're going introspection isn't necessarily in its of itself mean you've gone it means you've gone deep into a pov but it doesn't necessarily mean you have a deep pov
0: what i would also say is you want to avoid introspection in the middle of conversations because it looks weird i mean because like it's like these these two characters are having this really intense conversation and then your pov then your pov character spends like 10 minutes thinking about their past and then answers the question That they were just asked. Because it isn't like they sped through that whole thought process really quickly. And immediately had an answer for this person. You know. So you just imagine these two characters sitting there having this conversation. And then one of them just trails off in thought. And spends 10 minutes staring into space while they think about their childhood. Or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean you can get away with that. You can get away with your character thinking about like fill in some blanks or something for a paragraph but you can't do it for two or three pages not in the middle of a parrot conversation that's
0: so i think my introspection for times when my characters are alone <laughs> just to avoid me thinking about how awkward that would look <laughs>
1: just i'm a little bit more i'm a little bit more all over the place about that sometimes i'll like I'll use a conversation as a way to break up introspection. So like I'll be having a difficult conversation that like, there's a little bit of introspection here, the next difficult part of the conversation, a little bit of more introspection, next difficult part of the conversation, a little bit of introspection, Um, which if you've got a lot of angst to get through, can be like, like, like basically a therapy session. Like let's say you're going to write a therapy. That could be a a different way to, to get through your introspection. Um, But there's a lot of different things that can happen in your POV. So if you think about, if you separate the idea of deep, the depth of the POV as being the hallmark of how your author voice, the hallmark of how you write, okay? And that's about the language choices you're making. That's about um, how much of your character is coming through in your beats. Um, does your dialogue and your narrative beats basically feel like that they're being said by the same person? Is it really clear that this is this person's thoughts? You know? That's more, the the more that that's the same, the more you're getting the same voice, the deeper the POV is. And then there's introspection, and then there's detail. And it's conflating to say that lots of detail and lots of introspection means a deep POV, and and that doesn't mean that at all. Lots of detail actually has nothing whatsoever to do with a deep POV.
0: I tend to think of a deep POV as being about personal observation versus external observation. Um, so that when I'm in a, when I'm pushing my character i I'm going to explore their thoughts and their feelings, um, and even memories. And maybe occasionally if I'm really pressed flashback, I don't recommend it, but I did that once it happened. I'm owning that experience. It happened. I also did that five thing thick once it was, you know, amusing, but also a confession. So (laughs) you, for me, that's, that's what it is when I'm pushing deep into a like, when I'm pushing deep in my POV, it's about um, emotional context. It's about memories. Um, yeah, for me, it, it is about subjective versus, and less objective. It's about my character's emotional state, um, their reaction to circumstances. Uh, that's just how I do it. It's important for your own author voice that you figure out what you want to do with that deep pocket. Now, the, the, the reverse of that is if you always write in a... Um, in a deep POV. You're gonna come up the narrative scale a little bit in scenes that are probably physically intense, and in scenes where you have to, where you have a lot of moving parts and a lot of action going on. Like I think one of the best scenes I've seen from Jilly in that higher POV would be that that whole chapter she dedicated to um, that battle in that in demons was it demons um because she was like that was just like boom 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 and we were like constantly moving um the characters were constantly moving and everything was happening really really fast um so you can see that she can ride high in the narrative and really bang out an action scene that lasts a whole damn chapter and you didn't even realize you were reading the whole damn chapter till you were done and then you were like, holy shit is everybody okay everybody got their parts <laughs> but that's where you, if you do write in a third person, like in a really deep POV, that's where you want to get a little high. You don't have to get as high as anybody else does, or even as high as I do. It is where you are comfortable and what works for your scene and what works for your characters. And that's the point of the POV discussion that we're having tonight. Not only do you need to pick the right depth, and at the moment I thought depth, I thought of that song you put in um, the uh, random challenges. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Depth and speed. Okay. Um, I can't.
1: If you're new, you can squat oh. so that you can control the depth and speed. Yeah,
0: that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, squat, squat over my so, lap, right? So, yes. Yeah. So, there's the um, there's that decision that you make, like, when you're coming into a scene where you're going to sit on the scale between um, a, a deep profile and a high, pro- a, a deep POV and a high POV. Um, and also something that you would, if, if you're only riding in one character point of view you have no decision to make, but if you have several character POV, if you have several POV characters it, coming into a scene, picking the right POV is the most important decision you'll make for that scene. Um, and I don't pick my POVs when I'm plotting. So this is one in one perspective where I'm in the same boat as a pantser coming into a scene. Um, I have, I haven't decided who's going to be the POV character. Um, in most of my scenes in a novel, at least I'll, you know, I'll probably have at least two POV characters. If I don't, then it's an easy decision. Of course, I only have the one. But what I do do in the front of my projects is decide how many POVs I'm going to have. And I one of the stumbling blocks I encountered in writing um, The Absence of War is that I had to start it off in a POV I was only going to use once. And then I had to follow it with another. Because it starts at Arcturus's point of view. And then it goes to Dumbledore's. And then it switches between Sirius and Armand for the rest of the um, book. And starting it in Arcturus's point of view was fine. I knew what I was going to do with that. I knew why. I I envisioned that scene where he went and, and held the, what you call it? The, um what you call it? The little globe thing. It's gone from my brain. Oh. um I think there's an in, in there somewhere. Palantir. Palantir. Is that how you say that? I knew how to say it, but then I forgot the thing I'm about. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Palantir. palantir.
0: Okay. So when he was, that scene with him, with him holding the Palantir and being exposed to all of those um, future scenes with Sirius, including the death of Sirius, I, that bloomed full force in my head before I ever sat down to actually do the plot. And so I was like, okay, and that was after we'd had our conversation, me and Jilly, which you can listen to, it's on the podcast, um, about that particular idea. And like, what am I going to do with this? Or that might've been like something I did, I, I I thought of when I was actually in that podcast, but that scene was there. So I knew I had to start it with Arcturus and the big Marvel. <laughs> I knew I, I knew where I was going to start, but then I was like, I had a choice between in the next chapter, basically in the in the court scene of doing it in Dumbledore's point of view or already having Armand Deering in Britain. And if he was in Britain, that makes his circumstances about not checking on Harry Potter all the worse. So I had to leave him in France, which left only Dumbledore as a choice. But it was uncomfortable because I didn't want to have these two POVs and then never use them again. But I ended up doing it anyway.
1: I mean sometimes sometimes you have to. Sometimes you're now for me I will often make exception POV exception. I don't like to use a POV once. Um, Although sometimes I will use a POV. That's like, especially if I use like um, I'll use a POV one time, but I'll use like 10 different people's POV one time. And let's say I've got two main POVs and then I use everybody else's POV once. Like everybody gets a single POV chapter or POV scene. That is, I see that's a, that's a valid choice and it's pretty obvious you've got like one or two main pov characters and then everybody else gets one um but my usual method model is one or one or two povs sometimes three um but the exception for me is with prologues and epilogues is i will it's not uncommon for me to use a character that was not a pov character or even maybe a character in the story at all in a prologue or an epilogue so like i might tell um a prologue in a story from a character like Kira did with absence of war who dies before the main body of the story even starts. Um, And, and that's, but I know, I know in advance that I'm going to do that. And I know that it's going to work for my story. And sometimes, sometimes I, I, I prefer, I would like to have a hard and fast rhythm and go, I'm only going to write two POVs, one or two POVs in a story for every story for the rest of my life. But there are stories where that's just not the right rhythm. Literally. And And you've got to be, it's more i think it's more important that if you know the story you want to tell that you find the right um rhythm for that story that you find the right pov structure for that and if it is moving between a shallow pov and a deep pov um then then that's what you need to do um Somebody in a, in Just Right one day had linked a really good example about the dis the difference between a deep third person and what they call distant limited, Um third person distant limited, and the the they gave it they gave it an example of a of a passage told and from um, on an omniscient point of view, they gave the um, passage told in close perspective. Um, and the close perspective had, and then the passage was originally told, and I believe told originally Distant Limited. So that's three very different levels of zooming in with, with omniscient being the furthest out. And um, here, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the, the three examples of the passage. Uh-huh. It, it comes from, um, it comes from Wizards First Rule by Terry Goodkind. Um, Goodkind? Goodkind? I don't know. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Um here's the passage and this is this i guess told distant limited one of the pods struck out and hit the back of his left hand causing him to jump back in pain and surprise inspecting the small wound he found something like a thorn embedded in the meat of the gash the matter was decided that vine was trouble he reached for his knife to dig out the thorn but it wasn't there at first surprise he realized why and reprimanded himself for allowing his depression to cause him to forget something as basic as taking his knife with a woods now it gives some explanations about why this is distant limited but i'm going to read it to you in close a close perspective which would be a deep pov one of the pods struck out and hit the back of his left hand left hand causing him to jump in surprise the new wound was small but painful a thorn was embedded in the meat of the gash whatever the vine was it meant trouble he better dig that thorn out he reached for his knife but it wasn't there where had it gone he sighed it was at home he'd given his depression free rein, and now he'd forgotten something as basic as his knife that seems
0: deeper than you right it is
1: um, and it's because I would never, there's a, there's a, there's a hallmark of, um, I, it's unlikely that I would have a, a character ask a question in the narrative. Like, I think, where had it gone? It, because it, that can start weird. to feel, it can feel like you're talking to the audience.
0: I think you're two or three notches above that, but I also mm-hmm. think I am two or three notches below what they considered, um, distant. distant.
1: Now, let's read, I'm going to give it to you from an omniscient perspective, okay. um, one of the pods struck out and hit the back of Richard's left hand, causing him to jump back in pain and surprise. He inspected the small wound and found what he thought was a thorn. Unfortunately, it wasn't a thorn, it was a darkling seed. It searched for new life to spawn from, and it found his blood tantalizing. But Richard had never heard of carnivorous seeds, so he merely thought the vine was troublesome. He reached for his knife to dig it out the thorn, but his scabbard was empty. Empty. His memory had been ravaged by depression, causing him to forget something as basic as a knife. While he was distracted by this real the seed burrowed out of reach. Creeptastic. Yeah. The omniscient perspective <laughs> also it, it it gives you everything because an omniscient perspective knows everything. So all the things you didn't get from either of the third-person limited perspectives, be they deep or um close, um, in, I mean distant or close, um, the information that's not available in a limited POV is available in omniscient POV. So there's a lot more data available in omniscient, but it's in addition to being the, the the content is creepy, but it's also further removed even than the the to me. Um, I think the
0: tone adds to the creepiness. Yeah, it, it's like this this person above him is watching him get into trouble, and he's not helping him at all. Oh look! But it, it's like he's watching an experiment. Right.
1: It is. It is. It it and that level of that level of sort of abstraction does add to the um ooh ew, kind of feel of that. But in, in a romance, like a third-person omniscient wouldn't feel creepy, but it might feel impersonal, which is why you don't see third-person omniscient used in romances. Which is why you often just get head-hopping. Um, but if you compare just the distant limited and the close perspective, the deep POV, you notice there's not actually significant difference in detail. There's not even significant dif- difference in introspection. What there's a significant difference in and in, in how the subject matter is relayed so like one of the key points that's pointed out is that in the distant limited he says that he inspected the wound inspecting a small wound he found something like a thorn embedded in the meat of his gash in the meat of the gash but in the close perspective it says that he um his new one was painful, small but painful. A thorn was embedded in the meat of the gash. There's no he found that that level that he found is 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 distancing.
0: So, but it's- also that it's it's also distancing that he's not sure it's a thorn. That there's some question about what it is. That it might right. be a thorn. Um, which is why I think that I'm a little bit below that, and you're a little bit above their their example, which They're I think is fine because that that speaks to range. Right.
1: And it's and it's your author voice. You don't have to be perfectly distant limited. You don't have to be perfectly deep POV. And there are some hallmarks of a truly deep POV that I personally am not comfortable with just because of the way I was trained to be a writer. It's a little too casual for me. There is a lot of casualness in the structure of a of the a good deep third person, it takes a lot of training, a lot of skill to not be Casual in a bad way. That casual it's f- for casual to be done well, you have to you have to have a lot of training. Otherwise, it's just it can be just a hot mess. So and it can
0: become flippant and sound um, fourth wall breaks
1: and yeah. Um, so when you so I think that we have to separate the concepts of POV when it talking about whether it's going to be a deep POV, whether it's going to be a we'll say a distant limited. If you're going to be a more distant or more deep. Is a matter of your author voice. When it comes to how much detail or how much you're going to zoom in, right, don't pigeonhole yourself into, I have to always be deep or I have to always be shallow. Let yourself move and have flexibility depending upon what the scene needs. Um, I do think that a lot of people who think they write a deep POV actually are just writing a very introspective POV and it's often very repetitive. The character is repeating the same basic things over and over again, which that deep respect introspective thing can be fine in 5,000 words. It can be very tedious at 50,000.
0: And it can be butt numbing at a hundred if you get that far. And most readers won't. Um, Also, I think that whole introspective thing comes back to that. um, That uh, I used to have this um, writer person in my life who. I privately called the wanna be great, um, um, great American novelist, um, because he wanted to write, you know, the grapes of wrath. <laughs> I mean, because he wanted to write the all American novel. You know, he he wanted to write that that deeply powerful, introspective, inspiring novel, coming of age shit that was really popular in the sixties and seventies. Probably even going back as so far as the forties, actually, um, and. He was very disdainful of popular fiction um, and once called one of my my stories a pulp novel. And I was like, okay, how big was the last check you cash from a publisher? Oh, wait, you haven't cashed one yet? Because I was an asshole. Um, But (laughs) there is that thing, that thing that some young writers get kind of wrapped around the axle about, about being, um, there's an elitism attached to that. I'm not being very articulate. Uh, uh, We we had more than one encounter with this man. Um, He was part of my writing group for a very long time. Um, I had a friend once who called uh, writers like that, Harvard writers, that they wanted to be a writer for status, and they wanted to be seen as great intellectuals, but they got grandfathered into Harvard, and they're not even that great, so... (laughs) But there is that, that that thing where they put on airs and act like they're better than you because you write popular fiction or you write fan fiction or you write romance or you write sex books. Um, yeah. And oh, I, I don't, you- I don't write popular fiction.
1: Yeah. I'm like yeah, I know. I can tell and you don't
0: get published.
1: <laughs> I can tell you don't write popular fiction. <laughs> I meant the I meant the genres. Uh, yeah, I, I meant it either way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know who you are, Ray Dawn. But yeah, it's like um, it most of the audience won't even get that reference. Uh, but anyways, um, so, but you do want to honor your own author voice and pay attention to, um, when you'll find as you're writing. That there will be times when you move into a scene, that it will get deeply uncomfortable. It's like pulling teeth to get it out. You're trudging along. You're trying to force yourself to do it, and it's just you. You're just not getting there. You're just absolutely not getting there. And for me, when that happens, I take a step back and I look at the scene, and I and I try to evaluate. Where I'm going wrong, what's happened, am I writing from the wrong point of view, is often the answer is yes, I am writing from the wrong point of view. Um, Or I've made a decision in the characterization before this scene that makes this scene untenable. So trying to force your way through uh, uh, something that's making you uncomfortable can, can lead to bad craft. I've done it. I've seen it. You, sh- you, None of you want to read the sex scene I wrote for um, Courting Hermione Granger. None of you. If you ever read it, you would ask me why I ever thought I could write sex scenes. Because it is honestly the most awkward and weird thing I've ever written. It is 2,000 words of awkward. Like, secondhand embarrassment awkward. You'd be embarrassed for me if you read this. And I just pushed through, pushed through, pushed through. I'm just rotting the hell out of this. And it's just like, uh, I have to get it done. I have to get it done. And it was like... It was the unfun kind of spanking, is what that was. And I took it out, and after I took it out, I relaxed, and everything was fine. I was like, "Oh, okay, okay." But sometimes you don't know you've made a mistake until you're finished making it.
1: And sometimes you sometimes you just gotta back a scene out and go, "Okay, I'm, I'm, we're not doing that again." Hermione's gonna have her privacy on her on her wedding night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, sex can be awkward, Bri, Um, Except I write erotica for a living. <laughs> So writing awkward sex really isn't my jam. Well, but
1: even if I were deliberately setting out to, I don't know why I would deliberately set out to write an awkward sex scene, but if I were doing it, it would be for the humor value. It would not be because I just wanted to write an awkward sex scene.
0: Right. The thing is about writing romance and writing, you know, writing erotica is that a reader goes into a scene like that, expecting something, um, something soft, something sweet, um, something sexy. Um, something vulnerable, what they're not expecting is 2,000 words of my awkward ass writing. Exactly, Tim. Exactly. It's like the scene can be awkward, but my writing should not be. And my writing was awkward. It was weird. It was the, the pace was off. I mean, I just kept pushing my my way through it. And um, it just wasn't. It was the wrong choice. And we all make those choices. And the reason I'm talking about it is a lot of times um, I've given writing advice in the past and gotten back. Oh, well, you really don't understand because you've never been there. Well, fuck you. I have. I have been there. <laughs> you know, we've all been there. We've all stumbled over a scene or a piece of characterization or we've plotted something. You know, I have plotted myself into more than one hole. Okay. I have backed myself all the way up to the wall. Sometimes I have. I <sighs> have. Made big mistakes on Rough Trade, fallen flat on my face. I have um, made the wrong choices for stories, the wrong choices for characters, the wrong choices for POV. Uh, although I have to say that if I'd written Dr. Law from three points of view, it would have been a vastly different story than, than than what I came out with. Yes. And I don't know that I would like it as much. I really enjoy Dr. Law for what it is. Um, and, I'm, and I'm happy with it. And at the end, I mean, it was very... Uh, humbling experience for me to realize uh that this was a skill that I'd kind of let go of because for a long time I wrote in first person with a single POV and then uh, but then I couldn't do it in third person all of a sudden what really and it was a struggle really because I thought I had that in my toolbox but what I learned about myself is that what I put in my toolbox doesn't always stay in my toolbox if I don't use it you got to use it and um so yeah and learning um about yourself as a writer and in your craft is super super important
1: and you got to give yourself you got to give yourself room to breathe and make mistakes you got to give yourself to pick the, to back up and rewrite this um if you are being really harsh on yourself um i mean that's just that's just never gonna that's never gonna work well you got to give yourself room to experiment you're never going to find the kind of writer you are if you um are a fairy to fail um because it's not failure you learn as much about yourself as a writer when you when you learn how not to do something as you do it's just like science you know i didn't you know we didn't what is that expression about there's some expression about we didn't fail at doing this we learned how someone's going to come up with a quote there is a quote about in science about about it's not about that there aren't any failures in. Science. We learned what didn't work 99 times. Um. Yeah, there isn't an, is an exact quote about scientific experimentation, but writing is the same way. You No, no writing is ever wasted. And I, I know people, and I actually feel like when people talk about, oh, well, I can't. I feel like sometimes when I get into a conversation with somebody who's very focused on the fact they're having to rewrite something, that what they mean when they talk about it being wasted is it's not postable. And then I feel like I'm talking to somebody who's just focused on what they can post. And then I feel like I don't want to have a conversation with them much longer because we're focusing on different things. And if I honestly just am not going to have a converse. I'm just not interested in having a long, um, kind of trying to build somebody up conversation about somebody who's angsty about the fact that they aren't going to get to post 2000 words today and get some kudos. That's going to just piss me off. Um, I have not failed. I've just done 10,000 ways
0: that won't work. Thomas Edison. Um, So What we learned in just the last few minutes is that Julie doesn't have time for attention horrors.
1: If you're having, sometimes people present something to me as a writing problem, and it's not a writing problem. It's an I can't get attention today problem. And you need to call a spade a spade. And we've talked about this. If you are just, if you're writing for a specific thing, own what you're doing. I have way more respect for people who own what they're doing than people who try to dress it up as to be something it isn't. So if you can't bear the idea that you have to rewrite a scene because it means you've wasted time because that's not postable, then that means that your focus isn't about on your writing at all. But let's talk about, let's talk about the camera levels and moon thing. Um, Cause I think that to some degree when it comes to like, I mean, Susan, I don't think Susan's on the podcast, so she can't clarify the question. Um, but if you look at the depth of your POV is having a lot to do with your author voice and you can make, once you've got your author voice, you can choose to be a little shallower. You can be a little bit more distant. Um, and remind me to, to go over the thing again about um, mode. I'm going to actually I'll make a note about the homeless person and what that looks like in for. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to like zooming in on detail, sometimes point of view is a function of, and where it's really important is in, um, scenes where something significant is happening and i don't just mean action scenes although action scenes are where i'm going to draw the example here but also um also um sex scenes sometimes when you're writing a sex scene the point of view whose pov you're in really matters sometimes it doesn't but there are some sex scenes where the pov is critically um and sometimes you've written the sex scene, and you're like, this isn't working, and then you're like, oh, I should have been in the other character's point of view. Especially in scenes where you're like, you're writing BDSM, sometimes POV at certain at certain moments is really critical. Um, and honestly, once you've gotten the character into subspace, if you aren't getting into the dom's POV, you've made a mistake because you're just not writing a scene anymore. It's just I actually read a scene, something recently where they're trying to write, and they carried on for like seven or 800 words trying to write this scene out, trying to make it believable. This character's deep in subspace while trying to keep track of the action. It didn't work.
0: I don't know how it, it could.
1: I was just confused. <laughs> I was just deeply confused about what was going on. It, it's just, that's just time to change POV. I get it. The characters in subspace change the fucking POV. Um, so anyway, um, but what else I was going to go to when you're, Action scenes are a good example of where, especially where you can have a lot going on and Kira brought up the one in demons where there can be a lot going on and which POV you choose matters because some characters are going to be able to take on more information or alternately, you may want to give less information. And so you may want to go into a character where you don't have to. Tony was in a position of being able to give information about a lot more of the battle than Dom was. So His character, his POV was actually a much higher POV than Dom's would have been. Dom's POV would have been very focused on the battle right in front of him, as opposed to everything going on everywhere. And depending upon what you're trying to do, which POV you choose would make a big difference. That scene would have been very different from Dom's POV. And you'd have had to do a lot more um, catching up, you know, explaining things later.
0: You have to ask yourself, do you want to focus on this small event inside this big event and explain the other shit later? Or do you want to do something like what she did? um, Just throw it all out there for the reader so that you don't have to backtrack later. Because there's nothing actually more irritating in the narrative for me as a reader than having the author backtrack or worse tell the same scene from three different points of view. Oh, that's,
1: no, that's, that's, a, that's a POV sin as far as I'm concerned. If your POV needs three, if your scene needs to be told from three different people, you got to
0: find some gimmick to do it. You know, that makes me stabby. I'm, I can't, I can't, I can't. One of my least favorite things in the eighties and nineties were those books written from one point of view, and then you could flip it over and read the other point of view. I don't oh. give a shit. I've already read the story. Well, I want to read it twice with, from a different
1: point of view. If I miss something that critically, I mean, it's one thing to to for a single scene. Um, now, backtracking, you can backtrack. Where by, by backtracking, I mean that you are telling, um, like, scene one is told. Um, let's say scene one takes place from eight a.m. to and scene two takes place from eight a.m. to noon, and scene three takes place from eight a.m. to noon, but they're all in three completely different locations um three that's completely fine. different three completely different events that's fine you're affected but you are effectively backtracking the timeline in that and that's fine but it's when you have three characters who are in the same scene and you're retelling the scene from each of their pov that's like a pov crime it, it when an author starts doing that they start backtracking to retell an event from a different character's pov i'm
0: putting the i'm putting the book down i'm putting the ripper on the plane <laughs> But, right, someone said in the chat room that labeling POV, uh, I would put labeling POV in my top five sins. Um, and I'm seeing it in commercial fiction these days, and it's just horrific. If you have to label your POV, you're not doing it right. If you have to label your POV to change your POV, or if you have to do a POV break to change your POV, you've got no business changing your POV. POV labeling is just, it's a POV crime as far as I'm
1: concerned. Um, yeah, especially when they label it with the word flashback flashback
0: it's like oh and, and cute little dots on either side little swirlies what you call it T- tildy T- tildes yeah tildes on either side i'm gonna have a flashback now
1: oh tildes <laughs> on either side actually gives you a strike through. that's cool <laughs> Good to i did know. not i didn't i do not know what the short code was for strike throughs.
0: now we know it's charming terrible but charming um it's a big fat no do you
1: mean do you mean is there an exception with pov labeling no there's no yeah. reason
0: to cuz you can establish
1: in a couple of words within and there within the narrative beat where you're which character it is and where they are. You
0: Okay, let me give you an example. Chapter 1 ends with Bilbo complaining about all these dwarves showing up in his hobbit hole.
1: <laughs> right? Location I'm okay with location <laughs> labeling actually. I don't I don't, a, okay. I don't have a problem with location labels.
0: Or like date date location, I'm fine with yeah. that. Okay, chapter 2 Starts with Thorin bitching about being lost. Getting ready to find this hobbit hole. Okay? So he's in the Shire. He's lost as fuck. Did, it, did a reader... Did, it, did I need to tell anybody that I'm in a new POV? Nope. Because it's gonna start with Thorin was loath to admit it, but he had a terrible sense of direction. <laughs> Easy as pie. Yeah, you could do, do that with a... You um, could do that with a scene break or a chapter break. Um... It would have to be one of the two because there are different locations. I and mean, when you switch locations, you, that, that's the scene break. Or it can be a chapter break depending on um, your structure. Right? Um, but otherwise, you don't need... Labeling POV is the worst thing. It is the it is the work of an amateur.
1: Yeah, you don't need to label your POV. Because you should be able to to... T- tell convey to your reader almost instantly who the POV character is, and they should be able to take it on board and carry it. Which is why if you head hop, they're going to notice, or I'm going to notice. Um,
0: yeah, in *Ties at Bind*, I wrote a, um, I, I did an experiment. That was an experimental novel for me. Um, it was called *Time After Time*, and in every scene it takes place at a different hour in the clock, counting down to the moment where John is told he has to return to Earth for a house trial. And so I moved it around with um, different scenes, different characters, different um, moments coming together. Um, It was just an experiment for me, but it worked really well. So I put it up because I had originally written that very differently. I mean, I'd plotted it very differently, but I was just interested in trying that as an experiment. Um, And I really enjoyed writing time after time, but I probably would not do it again. It was was a very interesting experiment for me. I think it went really well. And it really helped with the tension and the, um, I just really enjoyed it, but it will be difficult to find circumstances again where that would work. And it also is a function of the fact that my mother made me watch 24. (laughs) Cause she wanted to have somebody to discuss it with. I'll do it.
1: Um, Sometimes you do experimental things and sometimes you like the experimental thing you did. And sometimes you don't. And sometimes you do something that you really, really enjoy, but you just don't have another story that that experimental thing did work for. So, um, but when you're picking a POV for something um, for any given scene, whether you're going to have a lot of introspection, um, whether you're going to have action, whether it's going to be sex and how much detail you're going to give. And you're picking the character. Um, that is where, honestly, I think this is where it's picking the character for the POV is where you're picking your camera angle. Because the character who's furthest away from the action is going to have the widest camera angle, assuming they know what's going on. And by action, I don't mean literal action, although it could be literal action. Which is why in, in Demons, that's a unique circumstance where between Tony and Jarvis combined. Jarvis is in Tony's ear. Jarvis is literally in everybody's ear. And Jarvis is relaying information to Tony as Tony has his heads up display and he has visuals he can get of the battle that nobody else can get between the two, it gives him an eagle eye point of view of the battle that nobody else would be able to have. And really the person with the most eagle eye point of view would have been Jarvis, but Jarvis was not a POV character for that story, Um, which left Tony as being the best character to relay the most information effectively. It, like I said, it would have been a very different, action scene from dom's point of view but we do get an action scene from dom's point of view and it's the first scene in stick around which was the prequel to demon uh, or it was the first story demons was was actually the sequel stick around um and that is telling retelling the invasion from a very narrow lens and that's the lens of a, an fbi agent sniping aliens from a rooftop it's not trying to retell the whole battle It's not trying to retell um, exactly how the alien invasion happened. It is a very narrow window on the Battle of New York and only the events as they're witnessed by one sniper. So in that case, because I didn't want to retell the entire battle, I narrowed the POV down as tight as I could to one person and one sniper scope. And that is not a function of a deeper or shallow POV. That is a function of which POV character was chosen to tell that scene
0: and picking your POV for a scene you need to for me what I look at coming into a scene especially a scene like the opening scene is how does this further my plot is this going to further characterization is this going to impact my GMC and answering all these questions helps me pick the right POV character and with (laughs) the opening scene it's about establishing the world it's about establishing your characters and it's about starting in the middle
1: so with With that story, I thought, what is the most important thing for me to establish? So Dom and Tony, I knew Dom and Tony are going to meet during the Battle of New York sometime around that. That was the plot. But what scene specifically is going to be the most impactful? Well, I thought about what do I need to establish? And one of the things I need to establish for the reader is what impact does Sentinels and Guides in New York, what impact does that have on the battle? Which makes the more interesting POV coming from the battle, the POV of a Sentinel or Guide, as opposed to somebody whose POV we already know. We already know what happened to Tony Stark in the battle, right? So, but what what what's it like for somebody who wasn't in the battle in canon? And then what are the what are the ripples without bludgeoning the reader over the head with the rules? Um, what are the ripples after the battle of Sentinels and Guides being there? Better containment, um, being able to catch people trying to sneak in and get. It. So, there's a lot of implicit ripples that I don't actually go right in and spell out that people should be able to infer what happened. Like the fact that they are able to catch people trying to sneak off with alien weapons and stuff, that they probably didn't catch people in canon. Well, we know they didn't because they had that whole problem with um, all those weapons getting out. Well, none of those weapons got out with Sentinels maintaining the perimeter. So, But I don't beat the reader over the head with that because I'm letting you draw your own conclusions once I've made it clear. And there's just a little line about them spending days maintaining the perimeter on the battle the scene of the battle so um so i had some priorities for what was important to show and i wanted to start things right before they met and show there's sp- i always Kira uses the phrase start in the middle and i always use the term for me a way i think of it is start when something's changing for one of your main characters um and for dom that moment of change is when they find out aliens are real they get a fax from Shield that says aliens are about to dump through a portal over New York. That is a significant moment of change for him, and he has a choice. He has to go up to the he knows about Shield, so he's about to go up to the roof and start sniping aliens.
0: I mean, I think his first choice his first choice is deciding whether he's being punked.
1: Well, he knew what Shield was. (laughs) If he didn't know what Shield was, he would have been because the 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 agent who picked the fax up thought it was a joke.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And when and Madame read it, he's like, "Oh shit." fuck me that's a big fuck me moment
0: but this is actually when you're in fan fiction the, the the choice that she made makes perfect sense when you move into original fiction and you're opening up a novel or a novella um your first scene is your reader's first brush with the world that you're creating your first brush with the characters that you've created. And you have to make a really specific choice. Um, Especially if you're trying to get published and you're sending this off to a publisher. um, If you don't grab that editor by the balls in the first two pages, they're going to put it down and move on. So you've got two pages, 500 words, maybe 750 words to get their attention. If you're lucky, they might give you 5,000. Read your whole first chapter. But if not, if you've not grabbed them and made them care and made them go okay what's going to happen next you're not going to get a sale and you can't depend on the canon of a movie um to draw their attention
1: right when you are when you're starting in fan fiction you assume that the nobody's reading mcu fan fiction and they don't understand the avengers so right you assume they at least at least understand the avengers especially in a sci-fi or fantasy world you assume at least the world is, is understood um but yeah that's different when if you're writing um sci-fi or fantasy um original fiction you're definitely have a different but when it comes to like more of a contemporary situation where you're like in a pure contemporary situation um i don't know if there's a whole lot of difference in how you hook how you'd write the hook between
0: um well the tone you set in your book determines what kind of book it is well
1: yeah, but I mean I just mean that the um you get to shortcut a lot when you're writing in a sci-fi or fantasy fandom that is not necessarily shortcut when you're writing in say a crime drama or a legal drama or you know any kind of procedural or military thing that's it's very anything's got a traditional contemporary setting where the world is the contemporary world you're a lot more in more like the traditional storytelling norms but you do get to shortcut stuff tremendously um, where the world is already known in a in a sci-fi or fantasy fandom.
0: Well, I think there are a couple of shortcuts you could take in contemporary suspense or contemporary like procedurals um like if you wanted to start like say your protagonist is a frustrated detective. Okay, let's say your protagonist is a frustrated Tony DeNozzo who has just come out of court and he's furious because Gibbs' behavior on a scene has come back to bite him because he's the one that ended up in court to testify for NCIS. And Gibbs was rude to a local cop or something, and it's come back to bite him on the ass. Now, you don't really need to know about the case, and you don't even really need to know what happened in the courtroom. All you need to know is that Tony has come out of this court, he's furious, and he's blaming Gibbs. You That setup has bloomed in your mind already. You You can visualize what Gibbs did. To get there. Because he has a habit of doing it. But you started in a moment of. Well fury. But also potential change. Because Tony is coming out of this. He's embarrassed. He's furious. Evidence has been thrown out. This person is probably going to get away with. Whatever he got away with. Whatever it may be. Whatever kind of angst you want to put on it. Whether it's a theft or a murder. Or whatever. Um, and he's blaming himself. He knows that Gibbs is going to blame him. Even though it was Gibbs behavior that caused the incident. Now, if you were doing this in an original setting, you would have to do a lot of setup. In fact, you would probably want to start it in the middle of the test of of the detective testifying,
1: probably, but but I, I actually think you could make a case to start it in the exact same spot. You could could have the somebody just coming out of court just frustrated and pissed off and then sort of back explain it. But I mean, it I, I just don't I think that the reason why, I mean, what you're saying is you can shortcut the character stuff because people know Gibbs, right? Because the thing is, people understand court. So, and if the case details don't particularly matter, they aren't going to matter one way or the other. They're not going to matter if they're original. If they're gonna, not going to matter if it's fandom. What what's being shorted there is that people know who Gibbs is. So you're able to up you're able to set the precedent of the frustration and get a lot of um, emotional credibility very quickly that you yeah. wouldn't have in an original work.
0: Um, So if it was an original work, I'd put my character on the stand and have him get caught wrong footed because of something somebody else did Um, his partner, his boss, whatever Um, something happened in the lab. Uh, And so that the reader starts to sympathize immediately with my character's circumstances and understands his irritation and his ire as he's dismissed from testifying. And he leaves um, knowing that all the work he put into this case is going to be for nothing because of this technical issue or because of the behavior of somebody else and so he returns to work frustrated and furious and then gets called on the carpet by his boss um even though he's not to blame for what has happened um so to create that um connection between him and the reader but with tony because you know gibbs if you're reading ncis fic you know gibbs you could start it as he's leaving and go from there but context matters especially when it comes to characterization i mean you you could start start that fic actually Uh, Six months after that court case and he's been, um, he's on leave because he got so fucking frustrated over and over and over again about all these things that keep happening and he threw a punch on a scene and now he's on administrative leave. (laughs) My poor character, (laughs) he's going through some shit.
1: I mean, I think, I mean, I think when it comes to contemporary setting, the difference often between fandom and original work for me is like the matter of a scene in terms of setting, setting the, setting the scene, which is you don't have to do as much. Like maybe you need to back up a scene in original work to lay the foundation for what, just for where you're starting.
0: Um, For For me, my stumbling block in um, original fiction versus, um, Fan fiction is characterization because you can go into um, fan fiction and your readers already know your characters.
1: But I tend, when I'm writing now, I will admit that when I'm writing, I tend to make a more of an assumption in, um, there are some stories I go into where I try to make the assumption that people don't know the show. Um, There are some where I'm more, where I know I'm being more reliant on people having at least some familiarity with who these people are.
0: Um, I think I do that definitely in The Hobbit and in Harry Potter because damn,
1: yeah, because you don't want I mean, the thing is, In some fandoms, you don't want to be sitting there Doing another person who writes You know, Harry Potter grew up at number four Privet Drive I mean, that line needs to just Be yeeted right out of fandom
0: um, If I ever wrote Harry Potter grew up at Privet Drive It would be like Harry Potter once lived At number four Privet Drive But it burned down unexpectedly <laughs> Right
1: <laughs> At least let's make it shocking Um <laughs> <laughs> so some some fandoms like MCU, it's like if there's some fandoms, I don't know why somebody's reading it if they don't under if they don't know. It's because they're, you know, where where it's like um, um, Harry Potter, the MCU, um, pretty much any fantasy fandom, Teen Wolf. And actually, there are people who read Teen Wolf who actually I'd say there's a fair number of people who read Teen Wolf who don't know anything about the fandom. It's one of the fandoms that I say is shockingly easy
0: to pick up because the canon is so annoying. That um, I've only watch- watched thirty minutes of a single episode of Teen Wolf, and I read Teen Wolf. <laughs> so some but
1: some but you eventually do get some foundation in at least who the characters are but some some fandoms if you're not at least familiar with the basic world dynamics like mcu or harry potter whatever it's like i don't know why people would read that if they're not at least why they would just pick it up blindly and read it but one of the things that can be appealing about any of the procedurals whether it's a crime drama or a legal procedural or military procedural is a lot of times if the author's you know careful about how they present stuff you don't need to know anything beyond the fact that this is a law enforcement agency yeah it's fbi i don't know who these characters are but i can still follow the story and enjoy it so um but i think it depends some writers approach fandom trying to not be super reliant on character knowledge but uh, familiarity at least with who the characters are often helps um even if i actually can get very frustrated when a author was relying on me for canon because it's like i have i have really crappy memories sometimes it's like I, it's like i've seen all the episodes but i don't i i watched that i watched that literally 20 years ago
0: okay here's something i'll tell you something okay so i read the harry potter books in i read the first four or five after they came out and i read six and seven as they came out OK, so to give you references to how long it's been since I've read those books and I only read them once. OK, so when I was writing All the World, um, there's a scene there was a scene in the rough draft where Ragnarok asked Harry if he'd ever seen a pensive, how do you say it, pensive, pensive, pensive. Um, and Harry said no, except he had in canon. He'd seen one um, the year before in Dumbledore's office but i just forgot because i haven't read the books in two decades or whatever and i I never watched the movies and um somebody said in facebook group that that single line had ruined the entire book for them in my in my rough draft on rough trade and i was like (laughs) i said if that mistake ruined it for you you might not want to read my work anymore because i literally have not read those books in ever i mean
1: yeah, you know, I wrote something where I thought, I remembered. I wasn't relying super heavily on canon events, except the character was kind of dipping into like events that happen, except I th- and because I didn't want the events to be super important themselves, I didn't go and consult the transcripts or anything. I wanted to just interact with them kind of naturally, right? I got the I got the episodes in the wrong order. I thought I had remembered them correctly, but I got them in the wrong order.
0: Ah oh, fuck it. Who she cares.
1: <laughs> it, it is. But yeah, I did is.
0: fix it. I did fix it in the draft that eventually got published. But because once it had been pointed out to me, it kind of bothered my OCD. So I fixed it, right? But I'm like, I've not read these books in 20 years, ever how long it was. Whenever the last one came out is the last time I read a Harry Potter book.
1: This is like, this is like the people who are like super about like all up in Lord of the rings canon like if you change anything if you get anything wrong they're just going to get really wrapped around the axle if you've only read the books and you didn't read supplemental materials and so you didn't know about so and so you know you just are clearly not an actual fan it's like oh shut up
0: okay so deathly hallows came out in 2007 so that's 14 years ish it's been a while i don't remember last year don't expect me to remember 14 years ago <laughs>
1: well deathly hallows but when did you, when did the other book come out though
0: um, let's see.
1: You said book four, right, or book three? When did well, he see the? When did? But the thing is, when he saw the pensive in, D- in Dumbledore's office, did he know what it was? Did Dumbledore tell him what it was?
0: He ended up watching the trial of Barty Couch Jr. So he actually right, I remember used that. it. That he was at the. It. That was in fourth year. But the question was, did he know what it was? I don't remember. Was it ever identified for him? With, with, I think. I think. I think Dumbledore did did tell him what it was when okay. he pulled him out. Um. But I, for some reason, thought those events happened in fifth year, which makes no sense considering what he saw, because that was the, their way of introducing Barty Couch Jr. to the reader, so that when he got revealed at the end, it would it, it would make sense, right? Um, that was a little bit of lampshading to lampshade Moody's circumstances to reveal who he um who was impersonating Moody, um, and that happened in fourth year. Well, all the world takes place. Okay, Goblet of
1: Fire was released in fifth year, two thousand. Goblet of Fire. The book Goblet of Fire was released in two thousand.
0: So that was nineteen years ago. It was twenty-one years ago. Well, when I, not not when I wrote All the World.
1: Oh, okay. So nineteen <laughs> years ago. So, cool. um,
0: but yeah, I ruined the whole book for him because I didn't remember that one scene in Goblet of Fire when I read it nineteen years ago. But whatever. But, oh, well, actually, twenty-one years practice. now. So. just suck my dick. Um, but yeah, I mean. it's It's been a bit. It's been a little bit. It's been a hot minute since I read the fourth book. Which I only read once because it wasn't even... I mean, and then I only read the fifth book once. And at that point, I had to finish the series, but I was mad. So I rage read the other two books as they came out. And then I put them down and have never read them again. And I've never watched the movies. I watched watched all the way up to the sorting scene in the first movie and turned it off because I was so irritated. I was just so irritated. Because they did something in the movie that infuriated me. I I I never got over it, but um, it speaks to characterization and point of view. And so I'll I'll tell you about it. Okay, in the book, Harry meets Draco on the train, and he refuses to shake Draco's hand on the train in front of Ron and Hermione. I think Hermione's in the room,
1: at least in the very confined place. I don't
0: don't remember if Hermione was there. Draco has little just Ron in the movie. Okay, I mean in the book, um, and. Dr- and Draco's two little friends, Crab and Goyle. Okay, so that happens in the book on the train in a kind of semi-private setting. He refuses to shake Draco's hand on the train. Now he sees Draco and speaks with him briefly. I think in both the movie and in the book in the robe shop, but he refuses to shake I don't his think, hand I don't on the think, train.
1: I don't think he meets Draco in the robe shop in the movie, and that's, he, no, does I don't he don't not? Think so. That's just
0: the book. But it's about the shaking of the hand thing. Because it happens in a very small private way on the train. In the book. In the movie it happens as they're waiting to get sorted. In front of all the other first years. In a very public setting. Um, Harry has delivered a really immense insult on Draco Malfoy. In front of all of their peers. And I don't see how that didn't resonate out. Into a much more intense and ugly rival rivalry. Um, and I was just so irritated by the change that I turned it off and never turned it back on. Because it's, it's, it did speak to characterization, and that moment should have rippled out like a fucking tsunami, but it didn't. I didn't have to watch the movies to know that it didn't. By the time they both sorted, it should have been all that war between the two houses. Well, it kind of was. But not to the extent that it should have been based on that interaction. Well, I'll,
1: although I would maybe counter. I would oh, so On the one hand... They changed them from the book, but they didn't significantly alter the events. On the other hand, that event occurring the way it did in the movie better explains some of the shenanigans in the first year. True. Draco's, true. Draco's antipathy towards Harry in the first year is better explained by that meeting going down that way.
0: So, but Harry's hostility, having not met him in the robe shop and not encountered him on the train. Makes less sense.
1: It does. It, well, it just, it makes him seem, it makes his, it makes his relationship with Ron seem deep, much more dysfunctional.
0: Yes. yes. That because, because
1: Draco was rude to Ron, that Harry is going to make an enemy for life. And he's only going to believe what Ron tells him. But it also implies that he really believed what Hagrid had to say about every Slytherin.
0: Except Draco hadn't been sorted. Then I mean, There was the assumption that he would go into Slytherin, but none of them had been sorted yet
1: true but he'd been probably ron the you, know, you kind of be, you kind of get the impression that ron's been running off at his in harry's ear about draco's going to be in slytherin at that point so it seemed like a, a you know an information campaign or disinformation campaign about slytherin in the movie um to make harry not want to be a slytherin and make harry hate them so i don't know it's there's some things that i think didn't ripple well in the book that ripple better in the movie but on the other hand there's the vice versa. There's some things that aren't well. The movie that rippled better in them. Um,
0: As an employee of the school, Hagrid had no business speaking about the Slytherins that way. He's actually like degrading other children. Yeah, they go to he's the-
1: basically he's basically telling Harry in advance. Harry, this is Harry's first friend who's brought him his first present, and it's taking him shopping and getting him away from the awful Muggles. He's telling him basically, you know, in an oblique way. Don't trust one quarter of the school, and I don't think well of them, even though I'm their teacher.
0: Well, no, he didn't become a teacher for the third year. But what's what's duffer mean, Star? Um, I assume that to be like being lazy, an incompetent or stupid person, a load of duffers. But aren't um hufflepuffs supposed to be loyal and hardworking? Yes, but I think they're also perceived as lazy. How do you <laughs> how do you get to be lazy and hardworking at the same time, <laughs> uh, dude? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i actually perceived the gryffindor being the lazy one
0: i would agree with that at least academically so yeah
1: well they made it out to me that the hufflepuffs are all to each other so i'm not sure you know only loyal to other hufflepuffs which loyal to your own in group isn't exactly a great test of loyalty anyway um so when it comes to back to point of view because we could rat hole on harry potter shenanigans for an age for yeah f- literally for an age um when you're picking when you when you're talking about instead of thinking of the camera level of, of your story as being a function of the depth of the POV try to think of the camera level as whose POV it is so if you think about camera level as zoom the person who's closest to a situation is going to be the most have the most zoom they're going to be right in it right and the person person who's the furthest away who is still at least peripherally involved in the situation, is going to have the most objective perspective or the furthest back perspective. It's a very different perspective telling a fire from the perspective of the firefighter who is in the fire trapped versus somebody, the scene commander outside, um, watching and ordering where the men are going to go to try to rescue the person who's trapped. That's a very different perspective of the same event. So one of them is very distant and one of them is very close. So if you look at that, as, and that's diff- that's not a matter of the depth of the POV, that's a matter of whose POV. So if you, if you know you're going to need a depth of POV, you want to pick someone who's close to the action, who's deeply intimately involved with the action. If you want something further away, you need somebody who's more emotionally distant, who is further from what's happening. Now, preferably not a contrived POV, because you don't want to just slam a POV in just so that you can have some distance, but If you've only got two or three characters, you're going to pick the one. If you need some some distance, you're going to pick the one that's the furthest from the action or the one who has the most emotional objectivity. So sometimes you want to do that in a very emotionally fraught scene. You might actually want the person who's the most emotionally objective to tell the scene from. That way you can convey as much information as you can to the audience without getting Deep into someone's grief, or but that is not an
0: excuse to add an extraneous point of view. No,
1: I agree. You don't want to add a POV just so that you can have this or so that you can be up close. It's that's not what you don't want to add a POV that's contrived, but that's why I said of your POV characters, you want to pick the one that gives you the camera angle you want or as close as you can get to it. Um,
0: I think it's really easy sometimes if you're coming into a scene that you want some distance from personally to pick a POV that doesn't really serve your characters or your story itself. I've done it. Um, I did it in Sentinels of Atlantis. I shifted and I talked about it in the podcast previously, previously how that I could not write Elizabeth Weir's trauma. Um, I couldn't do it. And I made a choice for myself to revamp it a little bit. So I wouldn't have to in knowing that, I also know that I did not make the best choice I could have made for my story because I do know that it would have been more powerful if I'd written what I originally plotted. But sometimes you make choices in your narrative that aren't the best, especially when it comes to your mental health and you deal with what you get. Sometimes you just got to, you got to
1: balance your own personal needs ahead of everything, because you don't need to be traumatized by your own story, or you don't want to stall out on a big project because you're trying to force yourself to write a POV that's or that's just making you, or even a, just a scene. Maybe you think you really need a scene, and maybe a scene story would be better for having a scene. But if it's making you miserable and stalling you out, sometimes skipping it and giving a you know a quick summary and another character's, I mean, um, it
0: might not always be ideal, but it will. It will be um, the healthier choice that you can make for yourself, and that's fine.
1: So, when it comes to playing with depth of POV, try if you want to try writing in a deep POV, and you're not you. I know people hate a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people hate first person. First person is the best training ground for a deep POV, um, and there there are three kind of modes that people write thir- for, and one mode you can switch completely to third person, a deep third person without even having a problem. The first mode is where you're using a lot of modal verbs. And honestly, nobody should be doing this because it's redundant as fuck. And modal verbs are like could, should, would. Modal verbs imply um, the possibility of something, if not possibility or probability of something. So, um, so for instance, if I were to type, um, I could hear John scream from, um across the room from i could hear john scream from upstairs let's do it that way i could hear john scream from upstairs that is technically first person point of view but you don't need to say i could because who else would so you drop the modal verb i heard john scream from upstairs okay that's that's the second mode right you get used to dropping the modal verb you don't need it because you don't need to imply that you can that you the pov character can hear of course you can hear unless you've Unless there's the only reason why you would say could is if there is an obvious impediment to hearing. Otherwise, there's no reason to use the modal verb there. So you say, I heard John scream from upstairs. Okay, great. That's that's better. But take it a step further. In a first person narrative, there's never a reason to self-refer. John screamed from upstairs. (laughs) So it's sort of like taking people through steps of learning how to get deep into the POV. First, turn off this whole could. Yes, you could. Of course you could. The POV character can hear. They're a hearing person. There's no impediment to hearing. Stop using could, would, should. Next step, stop self-referring.
0: Does anybody else feel feel personally victimized by this conversation?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is just me. None of you felt right in first person, so hush. <laughs> I have. Step, you have, it's true. But next step, stop self-referring. Don't refer back. There's no need in first person writing to refer back to self so much. You have to refer to self some. You know, I grabbed my coffee and walked out the door. That's fine. But I heard John scream from upstairs. Well, there's no, there's, you are the, you know, it, whoever the POV character is, well, I'm just saying you in general. But mm-hmm. of course, you did there's no one else in the pov so when it just becomes john scream from upstairs then you are in a then you you're in the the cleanest cut of of a first person pov and that that pov when you're when you're char- when you're in that character's head and you're not self-referring constantly constantly reminding the reader of the first person pov and you you know you're dropping the self-referring, you're getting rid of the modal verbs, then you're in a really deep space with the character. Switch that mindset, do it in third person and now you've got the rhythm of a deep third person. Change change the pronouns from I to he. And you have the same basic rules in a deep third person POV. Um you don't use, you know, don't use modal verbs as much as possible. Don't self-refer um, as much. A deep deep third person, you drop the self-referring, which actually that's one of the things I I prefer a little bit to self-refer the character self-refers in a third person narrative because otherwise it feels like fourth wall breaks.
0: And it gets weird. It gets weird to me. It gets awkward.
1: That to me is where I draw the line between a third person point of view and a first person point of view is if there's going to be like, what feels like the the, the character talking, I better be in a first person narrative. So um, that's just, that's me. That's a, that's a personal preference. It's not that you can't do it. It is absolutely can be appropriate to go that deep into a third person. So there's different ways to look at the depth of the POV. There's what kind of depth do you want to write? What do you want to be your author voice? Then there is what kind of focus? How close to the action do I want to be? I'm going to pick the POV character of the list I've already decided on, okay? So you should know who your POV characters are be in advance. So of my POV character list, my potentials, I'm going to pick the character that gives me the depth of POV, the closest to the action that is going to serve me best to be able to get the camera angles that I want. And then there is the level of detail you want to put in. And the level of detail really speaks to a lot, your personal style more than what the story quote unquote needs. Um, some genres are going to require implicitly more detail. Like if you're writing fantasy and you're doing an original fantasy world, you're going to have to, or sci-fi, you're going to have to spare some words to describe these worlds. Maybe not, you know, Tolkien level of description, but you're going to have to describe something. Otherwise, it you've lost the fantasy setting. You don't need to describe a courtroom. You know, you don't need to. You don't need to describe, you know, the de- the depth of the color of the wood. You don't need to describe how polished it is unless you're trying to make a point about something. Now, it could be your narrative style to describe that kind of thing and that's fine, but it isn't it isn't
0: a necessity. Does that make sense? May make sense to me because I be right, I'm gonna be I'm going to be real honest, I will skip that shit. I'm like, I know what a courtroom looks like. Where's the next piece of dialogue? Right? <laughs> I don't care that the bench is oak. I don't give a shit about the judge's tie. Okay. Oh, it's red. Fine. Thank you. Bye. I I just don't care. Not giving a shit. Right.
1: So look at POV as there's a lot of different factors, factors of POV that is beyond. Do I write in a deep POV or not? Um, And everything and make all your choices with care for what is comfortable for you as a writer and what is the best for your story and what is going to help you maintain a good pace. Because, Errors in POV, the uh, thing that they most often affect is pacing. Like when you're describing how polished the tables are in that courtroom, what you've sacrificed to do that is probably pace.
0: You can also damage characterization um, or create a situation that you didn't intend to create. I once was in a um, situation where I was reading a romance novel for um, this young writer. And I read the first version of this work, and she gave it back to me. She was on her second draft, and she changed the POV in the first sex scene. The first sex scene was rough. It was um, kind of anger-fueled, and the first time I read it, it was from the woman's point of view, and she was all in on it. She was pissed too, but she was all in on it. It was very much a a really good grudge sex scene that they went from hating each other to banging each other. I get it, right? Except she switched it to the man's point of view in the second draft, And it looked non-consensual because he was the aggressor and there was very little dialogue. And her, her rough and ready attitude in the first reference of the scene was different. His POV made it look non-consensual. And when I pointed it out to her, she freaked out because that's not what she intended at all. But she thought the POV change would make it hotter. It didn't because she really didn't change much of the content beyond the POV. And so she wasn't paying attention to what she was doing, and her aggressive consent in her POV looked like aggressive non-consent in his. And there is, it was, it's it's kind of hard to explain.
1: Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've I've read and edited some stories where POV is everything on the consent front. Um, because you wouldn't know that there was consent if it wasn't for the POV character. Where it's kind of like, oh. She's saying no, but in her... And, and the thing is, and it, it gets by with the consent because in her head, she's really into it, but she's saying no, and you're going, wow. And you actually reading it going, wow, if this wasn't in her POV, this would be a rape scene. Um, And it can be deeply uncomfortable. So POV, especially in those circumstances where the consent is all in someone's head, I mean, I'm not comfortable reading it. I mean, when I'm reading it... I would it,
0: not write something where consent is just in somebody's head. I wouldn't um, either. Because it's it's rapey. Um, and, but... POV is, but that is super important, but that is,
1: but that is the line for some publishers, right? Is that the consent just be obvious to the audience, even if it's not obvious to the other partner, right? Right. That can that can be the line the publisher draws, um, but it, and so if you change the POV character, all of a sudden the consent isn't obvious to the audience. So. Um, as, as somebody pointed out this is you know do, but do you know what the courtroom looks like because I've been in ugly industrial courtrooms with drop ceilings and ugly carpet And the funny thing is just one sentence, ugly industrial courtroom with drop ceilings and ugly carpet, one sentence can describe and set the tone of the courtroom. And the same thing was old-fashioned courtroom with lots of heavy, you know high shine wood and high ceilings. one sentence sets the whole scene for the courtroom. You don't need five or six hundred words describing, You know,
0: I mean, you could do it in like Tony walked into courtroom six. He hated this courtroom. He hated he hated this cramped courtroom. Yeah, this is where cramped. This
1: this is where low profile, low profile cases and rookie ADAs were did their case, you know, did their scut work, you know, with the low ceilings and the cramped chairs and, you know, no place to sit. It, It sets it sets a tone. And it tells you something about the nature of the case. So you can use those descriptors sparingly to set a scene that there's a difference between that and murdering your pace with, you know, hundreds of words about the tone of the wood and the level of the shine. And I wish And you I can would also
0: assume, speak to how uncomfortable the chairs are by the fact that Tony uses the stand in the back of the courtroom instead of sitting on a bench or in a chair.
1: Right. And, you know, or, but although you don't want to give me a chance to, you know, wax poetic for 2,000
0: words about officers. No, we don't. Um, As a rule. So
1: the, so the example that was given was actually a really good example of how the person who gave the example in the chat room in one sentence gives a, paints a very vivid picture of what that courtroom would be like. And it gives you information and also gives you very quick information about how your POV character feels about being in that courtroom because of its appearance and it could have an effect on their mood or whatever. He always felt cranky when he was in this courtroom because of the lack of art, because the lack of light and, you know, that one flickering bulb that they never managed to replace, you know, right above the, the defendant's table. You know, you can put in a lot of like little details sprinkled throughout that can tell a lot about the character. It can tell a lot about and set the scene very effectively. Is there a reason to wax poetic about Oak versus cherry versus mahogany? I honestly
0: can't think of one except that you just, there's really no reason to tell me that. Like, Okay.
1: But I have read stories that really go into about the the tone of the wood and the judge's bench and how shiny it was. And, you know, that whoever's job it was to wax the floors, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? And in the meantime, I'm going, is this? And the thing is, when I'm reading that detail, I'm wondering, is this going to matter? Anytime I read details, I wonder, is this going to matter? But even if Gibbs is bored, he's dreaming out a project, that's a very boring way to convey that he's bored. You don't want to bore your reader to convey that Gibbs is bored. But again, again, some point out the narrator avoiding answering an uncomfortable question by distracting themselves by noting the shine of the wood on the witness stand in front of her. Um, but that's a one line thing. If you If your character's really gone off for 500 words about wood in their own mind to avoid answering a question, again, the problem becomes the distraction. You never want to distract or bore your reader because you're trying. You've got a character who's distracted or.
0: I mean, and keep in mind, five hundred words at single, um, pay, space on a book page is a whole page. It's usually more like two pages. Well, like if you're doing double space, two fifty per page. But if you're like in a in a small pulp novel, yeah.
1: No, so, I mean, I mean, like if I look at like my stories, um, considering that my with my paragraph, the way my paragraph counts are. 250 to 300 words as a page and sometimes less. It depends upon how much dialogue there is.
0: I meant a physical book.
1: Oh, a book book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a traditional formatting theme, when you're formatting for a publisher and you're double spacing and using Courier or Times New Roman, you're going to get about 250 words to 300 per page, depending on um, the font you use. Um, if you're fucking with kerneling, is, is, is that how you say it? Um, kernel. and uh, turning and your um, margins which should be one inch um not 1.5 like you treated in high school and college um so that's about 250 so when Stephen King speaks to writing five pages a day that's what he probably means considering his age whereas I tend to write in um a single space so I get so this says print books mass market paperbacks run 300 words per page
1: trade paperbacks run or hardcover runs 350 to 400 depending on the type setting. Right. Uh,
0: so, so just imagine a page and a half of
1: discussion of wood. And th- but for 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 it to be but actually in dialogue, 500 words of like a dialogue conversation could take five or six pages so if you're talking 500 words of just a character musing like in paragraph form a narrative about wood that could be two pages of long paragraphs and oh my god i just hurt myself
0: thinking about that Um, (laughs) three pages about a tree or a whole damn chapter about a turtle we don't think we're not here for that
1: We've had several examples of where people are giving where this kind of thing is happening. The character is bored and zoning, or the character is distracted. But the thing is, boring your reader because your character is bored—I would almost say that's a sin. I mean, don't it, do it's it. It's
0: definitely bad craft. Very bad. If you have to demonstrate to your reader that your character is bored by boring your character for th- your um your reader for three pages, you got a problem. So.
1: You, you need to be able to demonstrate that your character is bored. Without putting the reader to sleep. Um, and you can actually demonstrate that your character is bored. While making your by making your readers laugh. Um, in his distraction. Um, uh, John failed to note how, how polished the wood floors were. Slipped and fell. I mean you can amuse your readers. Um, and flash his clown socks to the entire courtroom. You know. I mean. Which is also been- a sin. Clown socks are a sin. But you can, using description, long description to convey that your character's bored, um, I I honestly can't imagine boring the reader to convey boredom. That's, yeah, somebody gave the example, they read a book where the gun was, every time a gun was mentioned, the specs for the gun was listed every single time, as well as why they chose that gun over another gun. So this is somebody who did a lot of gun research or who knows a lot about guns and wants to be sure that you know that they know about guns. And it, it would make it stutter. You'd kind of like, stumble because that information doesn't naturally flow in that narrative that detail feels like it's crammed in there for no reason
0: and serves no purpose by that point, like, like the second time it happened i'd be thinking to myself do i need to keep track of these weapons is, is there going to be a murder investigation <laughs> do i need to make a list is there going to be a test later
1: now i usually don't even mention i sometimes mention the caliber of the rounds of a handgun usually i'm more likely to mention the just the the handgun itself. So if I'm mentioning the caliber, I'm mentioning it for a specific purpose. So I recently did mention the caliber of the bullets used in a story, which was in The Dark Road. When Dot shoots Kate in the back of the head, she mentions that with she did desert it with- a desert eagle? A 50 caliber desert eagle. Now, this is going to be gross. So if you're grossed out easily, you can go ahead and cover your ears for a second. If for anybody who knows anything about caliber bullet and exit wounds, she just conveyed in one sentence that she obliterated Kate's face.
0: I mean, I got it immediately. I, I immediately
1: visualized it. Like, oh, <laughs> right. It was gross. It was gross. She left an enormous hole out the. The exit wound of that caliber bullet is going to be huge, and that was her intention. But I the
0: size of a grown man's fist
1: right so I did not but I didn't want to say that that's it's easier some people will get it some people won't and that's fine but for those who got it it was an impactful way to deliver it but you know if there's no reason to mention the caliber of the bullet just, it's, 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 it, it becomes a detail that's irrelevant. Oh, you were listening to that story with all the gun needles. Yeah. Well, at least you did get into a rhythm where you knew you could go forward 15 seconds every time a firearm was mentioned.
0: I was <laughs> like, skip. Turn Alexa to fast forward. <laughs> but uh, you know, honestly, if you take away anything from this, is that you need to acknowledge in your craft that um, POV, the choices you make about your POV, whether it be the character that you choose, the POV tense that you use, um, the framing that you do around your character as they're moving in a scene, and most specifically the camera angle that you're picking—all um, of these things matter when it comes to um, scene construction, uh, characterization, and um, just basic storycraft.
1: So, before we hang up, let's pick a couple. I got a couple stories I think that have pick a couple of mine that I think have interesting
0: POV choices. Okay
1: overall and pick a couple of yours that i think have think have different interests so pov um detail is a function of what your story needs what kind of author you are i don't think it's necessarily a fun pov so i would decouple those in your mind as being connected to one another but so we've talked about a little we mentioned just mentioned um dark road um dark road i think for uh, my works is more interesting pov not in general as terms of pov dynamics in terms of in fiction but it is interesting pov dynamics in fan fiction because it would be what most people would consider outsider pov which is a non-canon characters pov which is not something a lot of people want to read um especially not as a, as the single pov um and it it was it was it was not i would say i would I want to say it was harder coming to the decision to use an outsider point of view than it was, but it actually wasn't. It was the only POV choice I had to tell a story in this time period. Something that occurred um, so far, so many years before the beginning of the show um, where I don't really have any canon characters that could function to be my POV character, which meant it had to be an original character. Um, (laughs) So And honestly, I conceived the story when I, when I saw the art, I, even though the art and the story is focused on Peter, I conceived the story immediately. It kind of bloomed full blown in my brain with this character, an older woman, Peter's mentor, who thought of him like a son, um, ruthless, cunning, um, and I knew that's the point of view co- POV character for the story. And I also knew that the story had to end at the point at which her POV was exhausted, at which I would need to switch into another point. So at the point at which it becomes more Peter's story, literally Peter's POV story than her POV story is where. So um, that one was an interesting POV work in terms of for fandom and for, you know, having a long history in fandom, because um, it was going into the dark, the outsider point of view, the, um, Other one that I think has a different... It's another one that I've got that I think has got a different kind of point of view in a very different way, and that's adaptable. It's another teen 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 Wolf story in the sense that it is a deep POV in its style, but it's more skimming the narrative in its function. It's all Noah's POV. It's all his thoughts. It's almost... It's very little dialogue. It's all tell almost no show it's because it's all what's going
0: on in his head it is um it's also the reason why every time i use the word adaptable i want to put it in italics
1: (laughs) i'm adaptable damn it
0: as kind of an easter egg to somebody who's read that story every time i see it i'm like adaptable italics adaptable
1: but there's also there's limits there would be limits i couldn't have taken that story much longer with that narrative style And with that POV style, because it would have started to wear that there was, that it was so much tell. So it was, it was deeply in Noah's perspective. It was deeply Noah's point of view. It was a deep Noah voice and deeply Noah's frustration. You get all of his emotions, um, and the camera angles were all his. There was no attempts to be objective. But the camera angles were also very pulled back in a lot of ways because you got to figure a lot of the deep action, a lot of the close up action is all happening from Claudia's point of view. She's the parent who's there when Styles is getting into all of these shenanigans, not Noah. So
0: um, he's not dealing with the aftermath. Right. And then Dr. Strange a- shows up.
1: <laughs> so Dr. Strange shows up, and then Noah's like, how come no one tells me these things? <laughs> the next time our kid. Inherits a planet. I expect somebody to tell me. <laughs> I'm adaptable, damn it. <laughs> uh, yes, I know you are, honey.
0: <laughs> it's very amusing.
1: Now, we've talked a little bit about absence of war um, being a different POV, but you did two stories back to back that were unusual in your POV work. Um, in that, right before you did all all the world? world mm-hmm. um, which also was different in... In POV, because you had... um, Was it just Ragnarok, or was it Ragnarok and Lenore? It was Ragnarok, Lenore, and Harry. Well, I knew knew Harry, but I couldn't remember if Lenore had a POV. But I thought she did, but then I was like, I don't want to be wrong Um, about
0: that. Honestly, no. It was just Ragnarok and Harry. Well, before they go back in time, I'm in in her POV. So, yeah. Yeah. It's all three of them. But I picked her POVs, like, when I wanted to give Ragnarok distance from events. Which is why she's... The POV character for their sacrif- the sacrificial r- ritual. Um, I never seen break to change POV.
1: There should be. There are three kind of possible things that might trigger a POV change. And you need generally two of them to be present to do a scene break. One of them is time. The other one is location. And the next one is POV. So if you change POV and location, then you do a scene break. If you change POV and time, you would do a scene break. Like it's later you would do a scene break. If you just change POV, no. So, that's the general rule of thumb. You've got the three things. And if you haven't satisfied two of them, then you don't do a scene break. Time, location, POV.
0: I mean, there was a brief time in professional publishing where they allowed POV breaks. Yeah, it was a... Sometimes it would be just a single line, a space, yeah. or other times it could be like a single star to indicate a, PO shift, a, a POV shift. I found it appalling. Um. So I usually, for the most part, um, do a scene break for a a location change. Um, Unless I'm taking my POV character out of a room and they're walking somewhere. And we're walking and we're walking. Um, And then I just go with it, right? Um, We're walking. But like I if my character is leaving (laughs) there... that character is leaving their house i'll have them leave their house and then the next scene there'll, there'll be a scene break and the next scene will be them at work several hours have passed but if they're gonna like go from their house to work and then to a moment of of plot worthiness i'll but
1: what Kara just gave was the example of time and location of change so you would do a scene break right
0: um but if, so if, but if they're gonna leave the house get in the car and drive and then meet somebody the moment they get out of the car i would not do a, a, a scene break but i also wouldn't spend 500 words talking about their drive into work
1: right if cuz time for me how you measure time can because be a little no. bit variable if if it's just you know if you can if you can cover the t- the travel distance like um he hopped in his car cuz it might be more impactful to be cuz sometimes you want to stitch like, little scenes together rather than do a scene break um, but on the other hand, if nothing is going to happen, the minute he arrives at work, why would you pick up? Why would you pick up? And he arrived at work. But like, if he arrived at work and then a bomb blew up, okay, yeah, I get why there's the connection between the two scenes.
0: Or you, you sh- know, if, if Garcia is driving to work, you know, she's she gets stressed, she puts on her favorite dress, she gets in her car, she goes get some coffee. She's thinking about what she has to do. She gets into the parking lot, she parks, and she looks over, and there's a hot ass FBI agent.
1: Oh. Hi.
0: Oh, yeah, and that can be that can be
1: really good way to to do that is you have just and just a little bit of detail. Not she got into the car. She put on her seatbelt. She put her keys in the ignition. Talk about doing things in the right order. Um, she checked her mirror. She turned on the car. You know, she you know, turned down the music a little bit. What she couldn't believe how loud she'd had it the night before. She must have just not been paying attention. Uh, she adjusted the channel to listen to you know morning talk radio. I mean. I'm already in a coma and it's only been like a hundred. And she's the
0: one talking about it. (laughs) It's it's really boring. It's not not what you want. Like Garcia, she got dressed, left her house, got some coffee, got to the FBI parking lot on Quantico. She's on, she's in Quantico, right? She's at Quantico gets out of her car. There's a hot ass FBI agent leaning against his car. It's a muscle car because I feel like Ian Edgerton would drive a muscle car. Probably a vintage one. Um, And he's like, Hey, and she's like, hey. Um, and he asked her if she's going to be at the range today. Because he's um, in charge of the range. And um he's like, hey. Hey. I, um, I, I got distracted. <laughs> I got distracted by the chat room. And she's like. And she's thinking in the back of her mind. I didn't plan on going to the range today. But yes. Yes, I am going to the range today. What are your hours? <laughs> she's made an entire change to her schedule. Based on his appearance. And so it's like. His appearance in the narrative, not his physical appearance, but also probably. Um, so, you know what I mean? Yeah, that wouldn't require a scene break because you're going from point A to B, C, and she's getting her meat cute for the day, um, and then she goes into the office and does some work, and then. But you don't see that. You, you cut the scene at the office, and your next scene is her signing in at the gun range, and he, and he's white. Or, on. or
1: they, he, she says says the thing and she walks away, you do a mid-scene POV shift to Ian's point of view, watching her walk away and wondering how she manages to balance in those high-ass heels.
0: (laughs) It's a gift and a talent, yeah. But
1: he appreciates appreciates all of her talents. (laughs) So, and the mid-scene POV shift should be in that situation very natural and, and in that case she's walking you you she's walking away at the end of her pov at the end of her pov and then it's to Ian's pov Ian watched Penelope watched Garcia walk into the building and was looking forward to their afternoon and then you can continue the scene from his point of view as he walks into work or you can end it, depending upon what your agenda is. So a mid-scene POV transition. Now, usually, unless your scene is very long, you do a mid-scene POV transition one time. Otherwise, you're head-hopping. Because going back and forth is head-hopping. But changing a POV once in the scene you know, is perfectly legitimate. But usually, you get to do that one time. Unless again, like I said, if it's a very, very long scene, you like can, a whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, like like this scene is an entire chapter. You might do that mid-scene POV twice or three times, but you have to be very cautious that you are um, leaving sufficient time in each POV before you make the switch so that it doesn't feel like you're just head hopping through the scene. But one of the things I liked about, whether greens why of yours and you may have some other examples of your work that even stick out as unusual or different for POV um, about all the world was that it was um, a different look at, especially especially if through a good chunk of the story, Ragnar was not fond of Harry Potter. So you've got this POV character, main character, who we really like, who doesn't like Harry for the most part. He's not all that fond of this guy. Um, and he kind of grudgingly learns to like Harry. And so that transition and that that evolution in Ragnock's POV um was very was very different. It was very satisfying. I really I really enjoyed getting to know Ragnarok. And I was like, and sit so there going, You are judging him way too harshly. <laughs> <laughs> Stop being mean being mean to him but then i'd understand why he was being mean so i was a little bit conflicted and sometimes that is the really a good hallmark of a really good pov character is that you're conflicted about them you're like i get it but i also want you to stop being mean quit being mean to brenda lee oh brenda lee stop being mean to oh my god what's her name sharon sharon brenda lee stop being mean to
0: sharon it's like all of a sudden you, you pivot and you're like wait a minute do well, I like better? I, I didn't, don't know. I, I didn't pivot until I watched Major Crime. So when I first watched The Closer, I was exactly. all in on her being vicious to Sharon. I hated Sharon. But then about a season into Major Crimes, I went back and watched The Closer, and I got pissed at Brenda. I was like, Brenda Lee, she just do her job. It's not <laughs> difficult.
1: Right, and because you now know this other character, all of a sudden, your perspective on that, on you know, you're all in on Brenda as the POV character in closer but then once you get to know sharon all of a sudden you take you look at sharon's actions through a different lens so um and i i you really get that in in all the world Ragnock's pov is really impactful because you're conflicted about his dislike of harry but you like Ragnock. you're like you know harry was in a really difficult situation Ragnock but i also get where you're coming from so stop being mean just listen to your wife
0: well it was a difficult one of the things about Ragnarok in that story is that he has memories of a Harry Potter that does not exist and and never will exist where he was treated very disrespectfully. Um, and Harry was laboring under what essentially was a curse and he had little autonomy and was just deeply resentful and was just not a nice person. And you can't blame him for his circumstances. Um, you, you might have been for his words and his actions. He didn't have to tell the chieftain of the Diverger Horde to go fuck himself, but he did. And you can imagine how that behavior rippled out. Because he couldn't talk shit to the Weasleys. He couldn't vent his temper on them. So it stands to reason that he vented his temper on other people around him. And Ragnarok wasn't the only one who couldn't stand Harry Potter. Because of what Dumbledore had done to him. And Ragnarok just becomes an example of the people outside of Hermione in 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 Harry's life and maybe he disliked him the most he, he you know he had plenty of reason to because Harry's attitude who pre- prevented them from having a patron and Ragnarok's resentment and attitude who did the same so and this is a man this is I mean very used to a certain level of respect from every single person around him um he didn't often interact with wizards and then here's the savior of the fucking wizarding world tell him to go fuck himself. And he can't do a damn thing about it. Yeah, That's some shit. <laughs> but then he goes back in time and he's face to face with the 15 year old boy who, um, who's who been weaponized by Dumbledore. And he knows where that path leads. He knows that path leads to being cursed. And it also leads to basically suicide. And now he's dealing with a kid. Not a grown man who told him to go fuck himself. So there's that dichotomy. Is that, is that, is that the right word? I thought the right word. Um... It's like, uh, it's like cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that's, that's what I was looking for. Cognitive dissonance. Um, where he has all these emotions attached to another version of Harry Potter. And yet he's dealing with a version of Harry Potter that is earnest and thoughtful. And who wants to do the right thing. And who's scared. But he's willing to do whatever Ragnarok tells him to do
1: and some stories you kind of would wind up the same story if you told it from either of your main characters all the world is not an example of that it being in Ragnarok's book is really important really important otherwise I think you probably just dislike him or not understand him. but
0: also you wouldn't understand the circumstances going on around him because Harry didn't know all that Magnoc did.
1: Right. And there you have to do a lot more he'd have to be a lot more forthcoming which would be then become a question of characterization and it just wouldn't be the same story so the POV was very important in in that story. Um and it was a very impactful POV character. At, um another years I want to say it might even be an EAD. I think was that special
0: operations? That, that that's an EAD story.
1: Yeah. I thought the POV was interesting on that one too because it's not a POV character that I think either one of us are really inclined to write all that much. It's
0: Gibbs' point of view right? Yeah, yeah. When um, when when Tony comes back, it's Gibbs' point of view? Yeah,
1: it was it was interesting. It was interesting to see Tony's evolution through Gibbs' eyes. Um, and then, like we talked about earlier, your first person POV work is interesting for in one case being really creepy. Well, I guess they're both a little creepy because <laughs> they have a of Stalkery can be kind of creepy. I'm looking at someone. I'm looking, trying,
0: someone told me that Sherlock and It's All Fine is kind of childlike, hmm. and I was like, you know what? There really isn't anything. Um, the, there, there are two kinds of personalities in this world that are that completely lack apathy. Well, there's two two creatures: cats and two year olds. <laughs> <laughs> they have no empathy. <laughs> they want what they want and fuck you. <laughs> But yeah, I mean he is emotionally stunted. Yeah. Yeah. It's but I think any time it's all fine. Um and it's a story where Sherlock Holmes is a serial killer.
1: But I think anytime you're deep in a POV of a of a serial killer, you're gonna it it's somehow gonna come across. It should come across a little bit weird. Well, unless it, it should, unless Yeah. Unless you somehow manage to Not let your audience in on the fact that this character is a serial killer. It could be like the big twist at the end that the work that they've been doing, quote unquote,
0: we'll put in air quotes around,
1: is, uh, is has been killing and they've just been the audience has been misled this entire time that their work has been.
0: Yeah, but that's an unreliable narrator. And you know how I feel about that shit.
1: That's not necessarily unreliable narrators. That could just be leaving out key details, it could be misleading. But it may not necessarily be unreliable. It's a big
0: damn liar who lies, what that
1: is. (laughs) Well, if you if the character goes to work every day and you just don't say what it is they're doing at work, it may not be lying.
0: Next thing you know, her husband's actually a mafia hitman.
1: Well, then you got the scene where the character's being served a warrant or something and they like kind of shrug and they go in and find, you know, the forty bodies in the freezer that he's been collecting,
0: and it's like, well that's a big damn freezer. it's (laughs) It's a living. Uh, <laughs> there was that dude that that mafia hitman who did put people in the freezer wasn't there <sighs> i'm sure there have been a lot of hitmen on freezers
1: you know i'm sitting here thinking and I, I that one of the stories that sticks out to me for pov is wrath and i'm just sitting here scanning it and i'm i'm not 100 certain why this story sticks out to me for pov
0: but um Rath wrath is a kirk spock story where uh kirk is a guide and um spock is a sentinel
1: yeah it's one of my favorites
0: it's it starts in Jim's POV. I think it stays in Jim's POV, actually.
1: No, it goes they, no? it's a lot of a lot of it's in the parents. Point. Uh Amanda because, they, Amanda, because they're White. unconscious. Yeah. Because they're unconscious. And then you don't really get to them until you're on the psionic plane. So a big chunk of part one is in the parents point. And then you go to the psionic plane, you're back
0: in Jim. Spock comes online because someone tries to kill Jim at a meeting and um he's the first sentinel to come online in a very long time. And Jim recognizes what he is. But no one else does in that moment. It isn't until later that they figure it out. Uh, I started to write that in Spock's point of view. But then I realized that I couldn't. Because the only way for that scene to end was for him to be unconscious. And I did. I couldn't figure out how I could. I, I felt like that would be awkward. It, Writing well, someone have... falling unconscious is awkward.
1: <laughs> well, I did do a. You could do. And I did do this. And I did do a. Um, mid-scene POV switch during a bombing where I'm in the character who gets trapped under a fire truck, which I still find that improbable, but that's not great. Character who gets his leg trapped under a fire truck, um, they were in his point of view until the moment that he's so injured he's out of it. And then it switches to the point of view of the who's watching watching this. Um, his prospective romantic partner. So I knew I, I. And the thing is, it wasn't going to work well I, that scene well from either one of their point of view for the whole thing because you miss the bombing for really from one character's point of view and the other character. I just would never want to write a scene where somebody is like, have has a critical injury and trying to write a critical injury or rescue from a critical because you know, they in 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 canon he's
0: really out of it, conscious but really out of it. Yeah, that's the story here for you. Um, there is a scene and there is a story in SGA. Um, and I honestly forget the name of it, but someone's going to tell me as soon as I start talking about it. Um, one of my favorite stories in SGA, but Five Row is a bitch, okay? Um, it starts with Rodney getting his hand stuck in a wall panel. Yeah, Mary, yeah. And, um, it's in John's point of view, and John hears Rodney scream over the radio, and he runs into this room where Rodney is, um, working, and he has tr- got his hand, his, his right hand trapped in a wall. And John, um, Uses his body to stabilize Rodney um, as Beckett is working on the injury and it is bad. There was like there were moments during that scene where you're thinking they're going to cut his hand off. His hand ain't going to make it. There's a scene with that too, um, and um, not in that story, but in a different one, which is really interesting. And I'll tell you that in a second. Um, and Raddick has to cut the panel out, and it's so agonizing that Rodney passes out and John. By the end of this scene, he goes into psychological shock and throws up. I mean, it is really s- super intense, super intense. Great story. Um, I like it a lot, and I can't think of the name to save my life. And if someone's gonna say it and give me the author. I'm gonna be like, yeah, I'm such an idiot.
1: If it's a story, by I lot. I'm just gonna, just gonna have to make a trip to right? Alabama for.
0: <laughs> right, Lady wrong? No, really? No, I don't think so. I remember reading it on Wraithbait, um, originally. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say I read it once a year, so it's probably in my pen board. I just can't remember it for the life of me. My, my memory skills are the worst. Now, there's another one. There's another story in Stargate Phantom about Rodney getting his hand stuck off World. Um, they needed Rodney awake to work through the problem because he was the one with the expert on ancient technology. The other one where he gets his hand stuck off World and he tells Ronan to cut his hand off because they're under a race attack. And John's like, no, no. And Ronan's like, and Rodney says, you need to cut my hand off or we're all going to die. And so Ronan does it. And they take it back to the city. And John's freaking the fuck out. But Rodney's not concerned at all. He's like, why aren't you concerned? And Rodney says, it's going to grow back. And that's when you find out after the fact that Rodney was in an accident at Area 51 and has had a history of injuries. Like after the accident, his appendix grew back. He had a technology accident. So his hand grows back. His hand literally goes back. There's a part where Caldwell comes to the city and wants to know why Rodney hasn't been sent back to Earth because of his disability. And um, John says, he's not disabled. It'll be back in a couple of weeks. Don't, don't worry about it. And Caldwell's like, what? And Rodney unfolds it. And he has this tiny little hand growing. <coughs> he he unwraps it. He has it all wrapped up. He has a tiny little hand growing. <laughs> yeah, it's a Deadpool baby hand. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: I just that's that's
0: exactly what I visualized is Deadpool baby hand. <laughs> and i like, "What the fuck?" <laughs>
1: we're we're gonna have to find this fic. We're gonna have to find this. What's your pinboard? It's
0: definitely McKay Shepard. So obviously, um, John and Rodney get together in both of the fix. They they but they aren't an established couple when they start. You have almost nothing. 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 I have one hundred and sixty three uh, McKay Shepard fixed pinned. Oh, but sometimes you use McShep. That's what I collect. And
1: sometimes uh, you, yeah, you
0: I haven't really. I need to fix that. I just haven't. Yeah, you only have like a few Sheps. Um,
1: but in Wrath, I do think Jim. Uh, th- There's some other things that make Jim's POV. Um, I think it's Jim's reaction, sort of his visceral reaction to what's his face, what's his butt, um, the guy who stabbed him, uh, Gary, Gary, yeah, um, that's I think better in his point i mean certainly spot could have intuited some stuff but yeah i could see why you wrote that first the first part of that in his point of view. but then they're unconscious and when you have characters who are unconscious you always have um an interesting conundrum um about what to do with your point of view because if both of your main characters are unconscious then what you just skip to the next thing that's in their point of view and that's a decision you have to make of do you, can you just skip to the next thing that's in their point of view and then deal with repercussions of all the stuff that happened? Or um, that's not always an option to just retell everything that happened while they were unconscious, depending upon how long they were. Unconscious. Especially if something, if there are significant events, there's some.
0: There were a whole series of um, stories in Stargate where Rodney's hands got messed up. Like one where he broke both of his hands and he got really grumpy and terrible and John finally confronted him. He's like, why are you why are you being an extra asshole right now? And Rodney confesses that he can't masturbate. And John being a friend offers to help him out.
1: <laughs> Another story of yours with the point of view really, really, really matters. I mean point of view is always important. Um, but there are times when it, you will be sitting there going, does it matter which POV I tell this particular scene? And sometimes it can be a toss-up. It's a matter of your which character you're more comfortable in. Sometimes you may make it on. I need a little bit of balance. This is not a pivotal scene, so I need or it that's a bad way to put it. But this is not a character pivotal scene. So um, and I need a little balance. I've done a lot of story, I've done a lot of the story in this character's point of view. So I'm gonna tell it in you know a different the other character's point of view. But some scenes really you're not gonna get the same impact by telling them. And one of them is the first half of Afternoon Delight, which is your Hannibal <laughs> playing <laughs> playing hooky fick. It really makes a difference. Um it's I'm sure it'd be interesting either way, but being in Will's head for being mistaken for being a prostitute is a lot more interesting <laughs> than being in the head of the person making a mistake
0: about that because you're like, you're going along with it. You're going along with it. Oh my God. You're going along with it. My favorite line in that whole fic is when Will says that, that he and Hannibal were not having the same one-sided conversation. <laughs> no, they were not. Cause no, you were, you were not. <laughs>
1: has asked a direct point. oh this is about it what if you're a pants or with these, this kind of, um
0: well I face it because I don't plot my POV so I think a lot of plotters would have this problem too coming into a scene. I
1: I plot my point of view to point. Like I usually know who my POV characters are gonna be ahead of time.
0: Well yeah but I don't know but, scene per scene. Yeah.
1: But I don't I don't I don't scene map, so because I don't scene map, I don't know what my scenes are gonna be in advance. I, but what I do is when I sit down, part of my plotting function is when I sit down to start working on a scene as I decide okay, these are, the next, these are the next things in my plot that I need to cover. This is something I need to pull through my subplot. I know what I'm trying to accomplish in a, in a, in a scene. So I'm going to pull these things in from my subplot. I'm going to um, handle these things in the plot. I'm going to set the stage for this. I'm going to foreshadow this event coming up way later. Okay. So I've got my to-do list for what's going to be done. And I also have to make a decision about what POV best serves this agenda. So... And that's when I make the decision. So, uh, in theory, if you're sitting down to pants a scene, you're going to have a similar thought process. Here's what I've done so far. Maybe you haven't plotted the scene, but you've got to have some idea of what you're writing in the scene. This is where I'm going. And what, now, if you really don't have any idea where that scene's going to wind up, you might wind up with a big false start. You might write it and go, oh, I should have told this from the other character's point of view. In which case, put it off in a scratch file. Don't delete it, put it off in a scratch file case you were wrong and write the scene again if you still hit a stumbling block you may have a problem with the scene in general not the people so you might want to
0: skip the scene and go to the next one
1: or you may have gone to the scene too soon i mean there's there's this is the problems with pantsing is that you sometimes have stumbles that are a little harder to quantify what's wrong with them the issue is but um yeah, just sit down, decide who's going to be in the scene, even if you're pantsing, decide who's going to be in the scene and generally what you're trying to accomplish, and then try to figure out which character best serves that from both your. Um, in that case, is who's going to have. There's a scene, there's an element we haven't discussed about POV is which character's POV is going to be the most interesting. Because how close a character is to the action is that kind of camera angle we've been talking about. But sometimes that also is a function of interest, like how interest can. Be close up could be the most interesting, or further back and getting more information, it could be more interesting. Somebody who's emotionally involved could be the more interesting POV, or someone who's not involved at all could have the more interesting POV. The character who's back there in the background, thinking snarky stuff about you know two idiots in love who can't see the writing on the wall, um, or who can't see the erection right in their face, that could be the more <laughs> that could be the more interesting point of view. So it depends upon what you're trying to accomplish and who's in the scene and um, what tone you want to set. And also sometimes, like if you've been doing a lot of action, like you've been hitting people hard with pace, like it's been one thing after another. It's like, boom, 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 boom. And it's been angsty. You might want to like mellow things out a little bit, and you might need a different POV to do that. You might not want to put if you've had a lot of angst, a character who's going through going through the wars as your POV character for the scene where you're trying to chill things out, it would come across as disingenuous.
0: So I'm ashamed of myself. About what? I found the fic. Is it asked a lot? No. Oh, it's okay, almost good. As bad. <sighs> <Ugh>. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as bad. It is almost
1: as bad. <laughs> I always pronounce that as a Muriel But that, it might. I guess. It's, I guess it's just am I real?
0: Yeah that that's how I it. it's coping ne- mechanisms by am I Real. Um yeah. I am ashamed of myself. I'm sorry, girl. I didn't know. Uh, <laughs> Five rows a bitch. So this is that's the one where he gets his hand stuck in the panel on Atlantis. Okay, where John kind of freaks out. Yeah.
1: Okay. Not the one where Ronan cuts his hand off. Right. Okay. Cuz as much as I Battlefield amputations, I get it, but they freak me out. <laughs> I appreciate Ronan's dedication, but
0: it's harsh. It's a harsh scene. So but, the, before- but really, I just remember the I just remember the little hands. <laughs> I remember most about the fix. So obviously, <laughs> the cutting off part wasn't ex- ex- explicit. Oh well, that's good.
1: Um, does anybody have any questions about POV before we end the POV podcast?
0: I'm gonna put this in the link library.
1: Um, okay. Sometimes he
0: did- the character sounds yeah, he did this, then then this, and then went there. Well, that's not POV. That's telling versus showing. You are telling the reader what your character is doing instead of showing your reader what your character is doing. Um it becomes this um it also could be a function of sentence structure. If you're telling one short, punchy sentence after another, it can get quick and stiff.
1: Yeah, you need to vary your sentence length length so you don't wind up coming out stilted. Um Bob went to the store, he got ice, he went home. Um,
0: um your POV can play a part in it, but most of that's that's a function of structure and like I said uh, tell, um, I'm telling versus showing um you can say that you could say that Bob went to the store that that's telling or you could say that how'd you
1: well Bob went to the store could be a function of showing if you're going to show what Bob did at the store It all depends upon um
0: I mean instead of saying Bob went to the store, I would say Bob picked up some groceries on his way home yeah to give it a little more texture if you wanted to speak to John, to bob's character you could say you could take him to the store and maybe it's a store where he knows everybody in the store he knows the girl checking out him checking him out he knows the girl who's backing his groceries he knows the butcher um and that speaks to your character's um general disposition
1: and this is if it's relevant that bob went to the store um if it's it might only be relevant
0: that you also need to start reading your work out loud
1: Yeah, it might only be relevant that Bob went to the store and got milk, as I mentioned, um, because sometimes you do tell, you fill in some details. You know, Bob stopped stopped by the store and picked up milk on the way home. That extra four minutes that it took him to run to the store and grab milk um, allowed him to miss his house being broken into. So this actually going, it's only relevant that he went to get milk in so much as you establish why he was four minutes late getting home. You know, not a great example, but you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) Bob gets paid very well. His groceries get delivered. <laughs> That's right. But no, I mean, you do want to, uh, there are, there are a finite number of reasons to, to have a a scene. Um, it furthers your plot. It furthers your characterization. Um, what does your reader know about Bob and how are you going to convey that information? Is Bob somebody who like shops for the whole month or is he somebody who shops for the week? Is Bob a vegetarian? Is Bob introverted or is Bob extroverted? Is Bob cooking for two or is he cooking for one? Is Bob using the grocery store to troll for a warm body? (laughs) Because men do that, apparently. I've experienced it more than once. It's always best when your scenes can do both. Further your plot and further your characterization. But sometimes you do have to insert scenes into your narrative that don't really speak to your plot, but do speak to your GMC.
1: Yeah, which is really important. Sometimes you put scenes in to show... Things and show the things about your character, and especially if you're doing a character-centric piece. Sometimes those scenes are actually more important than the things that lead that speak to your plot.
0: And you could convey a lot with a trip to the grocery store. Um, is your character health-conscious? Are they like I said, are they a vegetarian? Um, are they single? Um, are they hoping to have a date later in the week? Are they buying wine? Are they buying more than wine? Are they buying like 10 bottles of wine? In which case, what is good? I mean, is this their weekly trip or their monthly trip? If it's their weekly trip and they're buying 10 bottles of wine, they got a problem. And that problem is called alcoholism. <laughs> but, it all, but all these little details will play. So, you know, is he flirty with the cashier? Which is disgusting. Don't do that. Um, honestly, don't flirt with anybody whose job it is to, to be nice to you. They have no choice. And you're being a dick. but so and that would speak to his characterization wouldn't it so but you don't want to like while bob is doing his grocery shopping you don't want to outline everything he put in the cart and we've had this discussion before about harry potter and his shopping trip because if you put if you list everything you put in the cart and then two chapters later bob is cooking chicken wings but you didn't buy chicken wings some reader is going to be like he didn't actually buy chicken wings Are those from the freezer because you just said those from the freezer did he go to the store again? You didn't tell us. And you're
1: going to be so frustrated. You're going to be like, could you just let this go? And you're like, no. Why did you give us a super specific shopping trip if you're going to just <laughs> violate your own canon? And you're like, <laughs> there were no chicken wings. <laughs> I will never shop again, okay? I will never shop again. Forgive me. May a culpa, may a culpa, Me a maximal copla. Just let it go.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. But, honestly, the, the best service you can do for yourself um, is to read your work out loud. And if you find that uncomfortable, um, a lot of programs will read to you, put, you know put your headphones on and, and let it read to you. It will be a little mechanical, um, but it will give you a sense of whether or not you're being um, monotonous in your sentence structure uh definitely read your dialogue out loud because it will tell you if your dialogue um is reading naturally or if you're creating circumstances where all your characters sound like robots which we I mean, all do we we we've all been there we've all done it so that's just something that, that you learn from that's it's when you catch
1: that's when you catch your stilted that's those st- that stilted sentence structure that's you'll best catch it is if you read it out loud you know um You'll also you're less likely to catch um, overly complex sentences when you read out loud, but where you will catch the rhythm of an overly complex sentence is when you're stumbling over it because you're going, wait a minute, what? So if you're stumbling <laughs> trying to understand your own punctuation, it's like, where am I supposed to put a pause in this sentence? You might need to rethink how that sentence. And most of the
0: time, that requires that you break your sentence up into two. that's just my experience. Yeah,
1: nothing wrong with a good complex sentence, but so I, if nobody else has, that will be crazy.
0: About- <laughs> POD, <laughs> Well, I hope this was um, beneficial and that you guys learned something from it and that you will take uh, this conversation um, with you going forward and stay true to your craft and to your author voice and never stop learning about um, yourself as a writer. So uh, second night, Julie.
1: Good night everyone.